and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, Yeah, how you doing? I think the listeners can hear the smiles on our voices. Yes. We, we, we had ourselves a big, a, a big giggle yeah. before we, we started. But um, yeah, I'm doing okay. Um, I feel like, is there anything we should talk about at the top of the show? I know there's a lot going on in the no, world. A number of people passed away since we last recorded. Um, you yes, your, actually, uh, yeah. a, a lot. You know, we, we, we took one week off of recording, yeah. and we lost William Goldman, Ricky Jay, Nicholas Rogue, and Bernardo Bertolucci. Yeah. Yeah. That was... It's, it's weird. It was just like one right after another, yeah. and, and I... The one that probably, I mean, the one that probably means the most to me, not just because he was on screen, but like Ricky Jay is just such a unique personality. I mean, they all are, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but yeah. And so it's just uh, a sad thing. I know he was older and so it's not. And I was, do you remember, I can't remember why you didn't because you were there. Maybe you left early. I went up to Ricky Jay and introduced myself to him at, at El Compadre after yeah. one of our live shows we used to do at the old Meltdown Comics space. Were you not there? No, or? I was there, but I just decided I didn't want to bother him. And in, in, in a strange reversal for us. Yeah. Because it's usually me that would go up to people. And, I and, forgot I have a story to tell since the last time. You do? Yeah, speaking of introducing yourselves to celebrities or saying something to celebrities. Okay. Um, Is this a sighting? Do we, do we get to guess? Oh, I've had so many sightings. Really? I, I can't. I, I'm just forgetting that it's been two weeks since I've seen you. Yeah, I have so many sightings. And, and an odd um, number of celebrities live in Boise, Idaho. Uh, no, not in Boise, but I went to a couple of uh, fancy Hollywood award season parties. Um, but I also had a grocery store sighting. Okay. All right, we're going to do the guessing game. I, I, I would like to bring the guest in as well. I don't like. To, I don't want to do this I, all by uh, all by myself. Okay, but this one is also someone I think you were probably a bigger fan of. Okay, than I, our, okay. our guest. So I don't know, but this is okay. I'll, I'll give you a hint off right, a hint right off the bat. This is a big deal for me to okay. see this person. Okay, that's the hint. Uh, that's the first hint. Yeah. Okay. Is it Billy Corgan? <laughs> Let's not do that. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, male or female? Male. Actor, musician, actor, actor, uh, yeah, actor, mostly, uh, also a writer, but actor mostly also a writer. Okay. Older or younger, uh, older than us. And weirdly, I don't want to sound mean, looked older in person than I'm used to seeing him. Okay. Look occasional. Cause it's someone that I've known who he is since I was like a teenager. So it sort of didn't occur to me like, Oh, I guess this person's 25 years older Indeed. than they were. I still think of this person as, okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, movie star, uh, has been in movies, but is definitely, definitely known for TV. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. Sorry, the 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 problem with like the guessing games is that I think, like I don't I don't uh, think aloud. I think to myself. Yeah, you gotta like, think like uh, uh, who wants to be a millionaire style. Okay, so my name's Tyler. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, so mostly TV, yeah. TV in the nineties. Uh, the thing that he is best known for is from the uh, ni- the early nineties. Early nineties. Yeah. But also, uh, has been on TV more recently. Okay. Um, was he on a drama? No, it was a comedy. Very much. In the early nineties. In the early nineties. Okay. Was the, was the show cheers? Uh, no. Was it Frasier? No, you're barking up, barking up the wrong tree. Okay. Different kind of comedy. Yes. All right. Was Not it a situation comedy, 
but was it animated? No. Okay. Hmm. So it's just like a one camera type situation. Um, this, uh, show did both, uh, one camera setups and increasingly as it went on more and more multicam. Wow. I do not. So again, oh, your wait, thing sitcoms. What's another kind of TV comedy? The, is it mash? <laughs> That's a sitcom. Yeah, I know. What's another format of comedy? Stand-up comedy. Okay. Another format. I actually can't think of what uh, what you're going for. Sketch comedy. <laughs> oh, sketch this comedy. This is a guy from course. a sketch comedy show from the early 90s. Okay. You know what's weird? Uh, just a slight <laughs> side note. The- <laughs> I know. Just a slight side note. Um, when somebody, like, if, of course, actors that are in sketch comedy, they're still actors. Yeah. But I, I, it's rare for me to, like, it would never, in thinking of, like, an actor who's yeah. a big thing in the sketch clearly did not occur but, to me but this and, and person has also have. done acting roles including okay. he was a recurring character on a drama that uh you and i both watched and liked in oh, more okay. recent years in more recent years okay that's interesting uh was the sketch show saturday night live no was it kids in the hall it was kids in the hall okay. <laughs> that narrows it down to five all right here we go <laughs> uh, 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 uh final clue this person shares a name with someone at this table well, shit. <laughs> that, 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 that narrows that it down to Yeah. I'm going to say Scott Thompson. Scott Thompson That's at the grocery exciting. store. At the grocery Isn't that store. Cool? Yeah. Um, no, I'm not going to go into all of my. I do think uh, of him as, young, as younger. If I saw him looking older, it would yeah, be. Yeah, but think jarring. about it. We're, we're almost 40, yeah. so he's probably 60. Yeah, right? he's probably, yeah, probably yeah. that, yeah. Um, he looked great, but also, I'm just, I guess I'm just used to seeing him with. Yeah you know, TV makeup on, but Hannibal yeah. is the show that I was talking about. That he was recently. On. That's right. Um, yes. That's right. Aaron Abrams. Great comedy team. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exciting. That's uh, a, that's a big deal. Yeah. But no, I'll tell you, I'm not going to go through everyone. I cause there's a lot okay. and lots of people with these, these parties, but I did, I did, I made a fool out of myself. Oh boy. Cause I was talking with Scott Menzel of the Los Angeles online film critics society. Okay. How's he doing? Uh, he's doing great. Right. He's a great guy. Did you say, hey, you have a name and, in common with someone and, I just saw, and, and then you played that game? Yeah. Um, and this party was the Fox Searchlight party, so there were cast members from various Fox Searchlight movies there, including Rachel Weiss. Oh, boy. And so I, I made a joke to Scott. I was like, I wonder how many drinks I'd have to have to go up to Rachel Weiss and tell her that Constantine is a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> and he was like, you should do it. I'm sure she doesn't get that all the time. She would love it. Uh, it's probably a reason for that. And I think I, so I did like get up the gumption to walk. Like I, I, and I kind of had to wait for her to finish a conversation with someone else's weird. She's That's on her way tough. out. And I was like, I'm sorry. I just wanted to say, I know like, cause the favorite is the movie. Like the favorites out. I loved it. I think you graded it. I also wanted to let you know, Constantine is a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> and she was like, okay. <laughs> and just left. <laughs> she was very friendly, but, uh, it was kind of embarrassing, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. And if I met her again, I would not bring it up. I would just not say I'm that person. No, I think you should go with George Costanza when he was dating that woman with that was hard of hearing. And he said, I love you. And oh, she right. didn't respond <laughs> and just assume that she didn't process yeah. it. So the next time you yeah. see her, you should say it again. And she'd say, no, I heard you. Yeah. And be like, be like, yeah, right, though? <laughs> Don't you agree? Uh, so I, I, can't believe, I can't believe I almost forgot to tell that story. Oh, man. Because it's been two weeks now at this point. I wouldn't um, say you embarrassed yourself. I felt just... pretty embarrassed. All right. Well, that's um, fine. But luckily, my wife was there. 
Our friend Katie Walsh was there okay. to talk me down. Scott, the Scott Menzel, who talked me into it, disappeared, <laughs> by the way. I didn't see him again the rest of the night to go tell him that was a stupid thing you told me I to do. I have to assume he was uh, crouched in the corner with his critic buddies uh, laughing and being like, yeah. guess what I just had back But he, like, I, I trust it because he interviews celebrities all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he, uh, you know, he reviews movies and he does, like, on-camera interviews. So I was like, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe she would find it charming that someone said and maybe it's, it was my word choice because i told him i was going to say constantine is a fucking masterpiece, fucking masterpiece and might I, be a bit much and i said that yeah uh maybe that was what did it yeah like i've told my ernie hudson story i feel like recently on the show but like that's the best it can go honestly you bring up a movie that the person probably doesn't get it doesn't get talked about very often and the best you can hope for is that person it's their secret love. It's the uh-huh. one that they really put themselves into. Everything else, who gives a shit? The favorite, whatever. Constantine is where yeah. it's at. Well, what was you, the one for Ernie Hudson? It was Congo. Congo. Okay, yeah. because you, but you also had the same. I think you're forgetting with, with Oz. Uh, no, I'm saying with another actor. Oh. You and Anthony Michael Hall talked about Pirates of Silicon Valley. Yeah, that <laughs> and really. He was very excited to talk was. about that. Apparently, yeah, and seemed uh, more than a little bitter about how how popular Social Network was. Uh, like, we got there first. Yeah, because he yeah. he put that out there. He goes, he's like, he goes, yeah, kind of covered the same thing as Social Network, didn't it? I was like, I did think that, yes. Yeah, and I was like, that's weird that he would bring that up. It sound, <laughs> he sounds angry, but uh, but yeah. So, anyway. Um, Let's pay some bills, huh? All right, absolutely. Uh, so this episode is brought to you by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Movie's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means that there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. So Movie is currently uh, currently has a series about uh, Anthony Harvey, and... Uh, and they recently posted his 1968, I would say, masterpiece, The Lion in Winter. Oh, yeah. Now, speaking of stories that I've told on the show before, but it's, <laughs> okay. it never hurts to, to bring it up again. Because I think people, you know, like you're part of multiple critics groups and that sort of thing. And so we, we, each, bring, oh, we each bring something to the table. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not part of any critics groups cause obviously they're biased against uh, people of my type. Um, you yeah. know, <laughs> and maybe, I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, but it uh, depends on which type you're referring to. They're probably biased against one of them. That's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, so, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't mind telling you that I, I was in the line in winter in high school and mm-hmm. I, we did it competitively, and the show won a number of awards at the state level in Missouri. It won uh, Best Play, and then won Actor, Actress, Supporting, Supporting. And Actor, uh-huh. Lead, not Supporting, none of that bullshit, uh, was me. Okay. I played Henry II, and I won Best Actor, State of Missouri, in the year 2000. Wow. So it was pretty exciting. Away. And it's uh, it's So I feel like I have a personal connection to the to the movie you know i feel like you know it's something right. that it's something that peter o'toole and i kind of have in common i mean he didn't win but you know it's uh it was, it was pretty neat but putting all that bullshit aside uh i will say that i adore the line in winter yeah. uh, not just the play but i think the movie's marvelous it's wonderfully cast he was nominated though right he was because yes. he's a trivia question because he was nominated twice for two different movies yes. playing the same role because he yeah. was also nominated for beckett correct where he played henry the second again yes um or previously Beckett's first 
Beckett was first. Yeah. I think that's in, yeah, that's a few years before, but, um, yeah. yeah and, uh, but yeah, you see a young Anthony Hopkins in there, a young Timothy Dalton. Um, and it's just, and just, Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole, who were notably different ages. You know, you constantly, I right. say constantly, that sounds mean, but you, you regularly return to this, this theme of like in Hollywood, you get male actors being married to much, much younger women. Yeah. And in this Peter O'Toole admittedly is playing much older, Yeah, but he was in his probably mid to late thirties, uh, probably mid thirties actually, now that I think about it and was, uh, playing a guy who had, I believe just turned 50 and, yeah. And I think Catherine Hepburn, like she, they must've like, she wasn't super old, but she was certainly older. I mean, that was the same year. It was like a year after she was in guess who's coming to dinner. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, they definitely, they have wonderful chemistry. It's a, it's, you know, sharp as attack that dialogue. Yeah. Um, and I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. So and he, yeah, he lived into his fifties in the 11th century, which is like living to be 300 now. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'd say that's, that's the correct rate. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so that is just one of many, uh, Anthony Harvey films available on movie. And there is also a special offer for listeners of battleship pretension. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M U B I.com slash battleship to redeem now. Uh, and then also this episode is brought to you by the dice enthusiast pot. Uh, sorry. The dice enthusiast presents podcast. Do you think they've seen a star is born the dice enthusiasts? Why? why? Because of how good dice is in the movie. <sighs> All right. That's not bad. All right. Um, so, uh, this podcast follows a group of friends trying to make it in a world where it seems like they have no control of the dice rolls and their lives keep getting more complicated as they just try to finish a year long board game, which I don't know what the board game is. I don't know if it's just, if they adapted an existing board game, like clue, if it's or a year long, I'm assuming monopoly or risk. It could be sure, one of yeah. those, but, uh, but yeah. So, uh, in the final episodes, the friends find themselves, uh, lost in depression while on vacation. This is a very, I I've said it before. This is a very personal yeah. podcast, uh, and they seem to hold nothing back. Uh, so they try their best to help out other friends in need only to find that they don't actually have the ability to help themselves. Uh, and then once uh, a revelation of one of the friends having a secret life is out in the open, the year begins to crumble apart. And one of the players makes a terrible, choice in an attempt to solve their problems. So if that sounds intriguing to you, it certainly does to me. Uh, you can check that out at diceenthusiast.com or you can click on the link at battleshippretension.com. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. What I was listening to today, mm-hmm. which is also what I was listening to um, yesterday and the day before and the day before, okay. uh, and it's still going on, is uh, I don't know if you saw. So Michelle Obama, former First Lady Michelle Obama, is on a book tour. And Questlove, mm-hmm. just out of the kindness of his heart, made her a Spotify playlist to listen to on her book tour that is like three days long. I'm not saying three work days. It's like 70 hours of music um, uh, from the the 50s to the present. Uh, so I've just been listening to the music that Questlove thought Michelle Obama would want, want to listen to on her road trip. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Kind of feels like you're eavesdropping here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You have no business being a part of this conversation. Yeah, um, but that's what I'm listening to. Sounds great. All Questlove knows what he's doing. Um, 
and uh, it sounds great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. You can have the same experience by getting tweakedaudio.com earbuds for yourself at tweakedaudio.com. They're available at a low, low price, uh, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we went way too long there because I'd forgotten about my celebrity stories. Right. I have more sightings to tell you about later, but I'm not going to get into it now. We'll space those uh, out over the next several weeks. Yeah, well, who's not, I'm, not, I'm just going to keep, this is, this is L.A., baby. I'm going to keep <laughs> racking up, racking up uh, celebrity sightings left and right. Every time I, I step love- out of the house, there's Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, Michael Winslow, Richard Mole. <laughs> they all hang out together. Um, yeah. Uh, Bai Ling. <laughs> See her at the... Uh, wait, isn't, uh, who, who is that? By Ling, uh, the actress from that one terrible episode of lost. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. All right. Thank you. Why would you, why is it terrible because of her? Uh, no, it's just, it, it's everyone's least favorite episode of lost. Is it Jack's, ta- Jack's, Jack's tattoo episode? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's everyone's least favorite. Yeah. It's kind of nice that everyone can have a least. It's like with the Sopranos. Everyone's least favorite episode is the Christopher Columbus one. And we can all agree the Christopher Columbus Sopranos episode is really stupid. And then we just move on. I don't even remember that one. So I guess that's a win. Oh yeah. Um, anyway, the native Americans are protesting. Mm hmm. The Christopher Columbus statue because he's Italian. The Italians are rallying around it. It's yes. directed by um, uh, the guy who played Christopher, not Christopher Columbus. The guy who play, uh, oh yeah, I'm trying to blank on his name. I'm uh, Michael Imperioli. Michael Imperioli. Yeah. Uh, at the end, they all go to the Foxwoods Casino. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, as the worst episode. Um, Okay, so what are we saying? Okay, we have stuff to get to. We're finally going to recap the AFI Fest. Let's get into it. Uh, our guest is Battleship Pretension Editor-at-Large, Scott Nye. Was it like a half an hour of freaking not bringing Scott in the episode? Just under 18 minutes. <sighs> Least favorite lost episode, Scott. What do you got? The Jack's Tattoo episode. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Of course. That's, that's the beautiful thing about shows that have... Well, I, to episode. be fair, the people I was watching the first two seasons with uh, went ahead and watched five episodes without me. So maybe in those five episodes, sure. there's uh, an episode I would dislike more there's always the what kate did episode uh which it that's the alternate title the initial one was yawn uh <laughs> because ugh. I, um, I always liked kate more than most people so uh, i don't think i had beef with that episode um it's funny i was never a big kate fan but now like post lost i'm like sure i'm in evangeline lily's corner well, yeah you like, always root for people from shows you like yeah yeah it's um, like uh, whoever the girl who played Elliot on Scrubs. I feel bad that she doesn't have a career. Um, it's like, I don't really care. Wait, Sarah Chalk? Yeah. But she's on the Connors. What? She's on the Connors. Really? Formerly Roseanne. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh. She played Becky. Now I feel on... even worse for her than when I thought she wasn't doing <laughs> so you anything. Don't know, okay, so Lacey Goranson played Becky on the original show. I don't know what show. we're talking about. Okay, on Roseanne. Okay. You've watched Roseanne. No. Oh, okay. It's, so uh, I don't know what we're talking about. Going back to pre-her losing her mind, or at least losing her mind in the way she did. Right. She did. Roseanne was a good show. Lacey Gorenson played Becky. Okay. Then she left the series and was replaced by Sarah Chalk. Okay. And then came back. And so on the reboot, 
they've got the original Lacey Gordonson, but then they cast Sarah Chalk in a separate role as Lacey Gordonson's boss as kind of like an in That's very strange. Yeah. Um, but it was just a way of bringing everybody together, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So she's doing fine. I don't know. All right, good to hear. One time I worked at the Arclight gift shop, and she came in, and she was the sweetest person. That's a nice Um one. She's going to make it after all. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I was about to say something. Um, I can't remember what it was, so let's move on. All right. Um, it was something about Lost, I'm sure, and about least favorite episodes or favorite episodes. Um, oh, no, it was about... <laughs> Your joke about the show, the episode having a different title in the mm-hmm. movie. My favorite actual story about that with Lost, the episode Walkabout, which is where we're first, the first lock flashback, right, yeah. was originally titled, titled Lord of the Files. Because <laughs> you find out that this, like, yeah. you know, uh, what, what, Nature Man was yeah. a, a desk clerk. Uh, I love that title. I like that one more. Uh, yeah. All right. I guess it doesn't tonally fit with the show. <laughs> yeah. So we are going to talk about what we saw at AFI Fest. Um, we have a lot to get to. I'm thinking maybe, Tyler, you established a bit of a tradition with me and Angie for the Toronto Film Festival. Yeah, which um, admittedly... I think it, it kept work. us more on track. Uh, okay, maybe, yeah. Than, than we would have been otherwise. All right, so what do we think in a minute each? Um, oh, you did three minutes each for me and Angie. How many do you have now as opposed to then? I think we only uh, have 20-something. 20-something? To, talk. to uh, actually talk about. Yeah. yeah. So let's... Okay, so um, let's say uh, 2.30. All right. So uh, I'm just gonna, we're just going to go in alphabetical order. I have the list in front of me, so I will be... Uh, I also have the list, but I'll follow along. Directing things here. Um, so we'll, we'll start. How about this? How about this? Sorry. <laughs> Let's say you, David, you've got something that Scott has not seen. Uh-huh. All right. So that you get two, th- uh, two minutes, 30 seconds. Okay? okay. If Scott has seen it, it's now a discussion. Yeah. So I'll kick it up to four. Okay. All right. Well, All right. set your thing for four then. Because you're starting with a As a debate team member, I'll uh, probably save my time for okay. some. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but we're going to start with a movie that is at the beginning of the alphabet because people put numbers at the beginning of the alphabet. Where do you yeah. put them? Normally, okay, so the first number here is three, so I yeah. put it under T because three starts with a T. But, but the typeface yeah. is the number three. The title three. of the film does not start with a T. Yes, it does, because it's three faces, <laughs> and that's spelled T-H-R-E-E space F-A-C-E-S. Is the word, is, the, is it spelled out? No, it's not. Okay. It's a number. So I'm kowtowing to what everyone else in the okay. insane world does and putting it at the beginning as opposed to if I own the Blu-ray, it would go in the T's. All right. Um, three faces, the new film from Jafar. Uh, I've always said Panahi. Apparently it's Panahi. Ah, damn because, it. Because they say it. 20 million times in the episode um, in the episode <laughs> in the episode in the movie um but i want to get i actually did talk about this movie already when we did the toronto um wrap up uh i want to get scott's thoughts yeah i was very very keen on this one uh i, I haven't seen this is not a film and i feel bad uh but otherwise i've been a little soft i think on his post ban filmmaking uh which has been just much compromised by circumstance as inspired by it. I think this is the one where he figured out how to incorporate kind of the consumer grade technology and the DIY aesthetic into something a little bit more polished and a little bit more expressive than just kind of its limitations. You know, a lot of it's still shot because it's about he and uh, this actress who's an Iranian actress named uh, Benhaz Jafari, or maybe it's 
Jeff Farrar. Jeff Farrar. They say it in the movie. Okay, I'm really bad. When people, when it's a foreign language movie, I never pay attention to how things are pronounced. <laughs> I'm just like, I get the intonation and the expressiveness with which I'm supposed to read the subtitle, and that's Look, the end you guys it. are just lucky I'm here, all right? <laughs> and not excited to go see Bumblebee or something. Okay, go ahead. It doesn't look bad. Um, what was I saying? Right, so they... E.T. Like e. if he was big and metal and you wouldn't want to hug him. Well, I don't want to hug E.T. <laughs> That's true. He does, I look, hug he e. does look kind of slimy. Okay, sorry. Um, anyway, so it's about the, these two who journey to a distant Iranian village uh, after receiving a video of a girl apparently committing suicide. But this is an Iranian art film, so does she commit suicide? Are any of us really alive? Um, and so, and most, also you can tell it's an Iranian art film because half of it takes place in a car. Which I was just going to say. Oh, you may. Uh, so yeah, sorry, that was most of the film is them driving to the village or driving around the village. And like with his last own taxi, he still uses a lot of kind of dash cam aesthetic. But it really works much better in this film. I think like some of the shots look like they're from a steady cam perspective almost. Them like following people through the streets. And you only realize later that's from a car's perspective. Um, so I think the way he kind of melded that kind of hidden camera aesthetic is really much more effective here he does seem to be getting bolder too in terms of his filmmaking uh now that he realized apparently iran is just not going to punish him for making <laughs> films uh, i know he's still under some limitation they discuss that in the movie about how he still has to get home every night more or less uh, and still under some house arrest but uh i do enjoy that he's continually thumbing his nose at authority which is kind of what the film is about um the girl who maybe commits suicide does so because she wants to be an actress. Uh, but the people in her village won't let her. Um, and so it's another way for him to express these kind of senseless rules that, uh, society's put down on people. I think the, having it go from starting in the, start in the city yeah. and go to the, to the countryside is really, uh, I mean, you, people say this about America too, but there are two Iran's in a lot of ways, right? Because Iran was a secular nation up until, 1979 there was a or at least a more secular nation there was a revolution I think the three faces of the movie is referring to as far as my interpretation is none of Jafar is not one of them it's the young actress who maybe dies there's Mrs. Jafarai and then there's the older actress that we never actually see except for in silhouette right Mm, yeah that's who I thought of as the three faces who are three three women who have the same profession or the same vocation or whatever, but have a very different idea of what Iran is because they are raised, you know, in, they were raised, the older woman was presumably raised before the revolution. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Jafari is how they keep saying her <laughs> name. Um, mid revolution. And then this young girl has never known the pre revolution uh, Iran. And so I think, uh, the starting in the city and then going out to the country, you see how uh, you, you see the push and pull and it's especially well illustrated by the fact that they literally speak a different language in the country, uh, which I don't know if you noticed. I did not. <laughs> All right. We should move on. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, next up is a movie for Scott. It's called, the American th- title is all good. <laughs> but I, they, having recently come right. back from Germany, call it Alles ist gut. It is a German film, so yeah. David's, David's not just speaking German for <laughs> right, just, no freaking reason. Yeah, I don't just uh, call all movies uh, <laughs> by their German titles now. Um, I wish I knew the German word for face. I would say dry faces, but I can't think what it is. Uh, all right. Uh, anyway, so this is, I don't really have too much to say about it. It's a German film uh, about a woman who goes to a kind of a high school reunion uh, hits it off with this guy. They kind of go home together, um, but he is more keen to take things to a different place and ends up uh, raping her. Um, and the film is largely about her trying to put this behind her 
and not have it define the way she's perceived or the way she perceives herself, which is a great premise for a movie. I think it kind of pushes it uh, unnecessarily in some ways by having her continually run into this guy who she's never really seen before this night um, through her job and stuff. Uh, she just randomly starts encountering him tons, but I think there are probably better ways you could express the same storyline. Uh, though I will say it does end with the rare abrupt ending that actually caught me off guard. I feel like the abrupt ending is such an art house thing these days. Um, How would you define abrupt ending? Just like, you know, you're in the middle of a scene and it's like re- reaching an emotional climax and then bam, cut to black. Smash ticket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, this one genuinely caught me off guard and I think it was a really smart decision. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty solid movie. Um, your next movie is called Ash is Purest White. Yeah, this is the latest film from Chinese director Zhao Zhangke, um, whose work I'm not terribly familiar with. I saw his last two films, The Touch of Sin and Mountains May Depart, and like them all right. But this, I think, is really extraordinary. It's It starts out as like a full-on gangster movie. Um, this guy who's trying to like rise up the ranks in this... He, he runs some kind of gambling operation that's very like low stakes and not one you know it's not like the godfather of goodfellas or something he's not like running a city he's running like a very small corner uh of some chinese city i can't remember which um but he and his girlfriend are kind of trying to rule it as though they're like these bigger than life gangsters uh and that all comes to a head in this really exciting and incredibly violent street confrontation uh where she pulls out a gun and eventually kind of gains the upper hand over this gang that's trying to kill him and then it explores the actual consequences of her firing a gun in public um Hmm. it takes a whole left turn and becomes she goes to prison and then gets out of prison and i won't spoil too much from there but it's really about the effects that the life of crime has had on both of them and how the extent to which they're still drawn back together still drawn back to that life um but are kind of forever marked by the tragedy of this violent incident that neither of them really committed the most demonstrable violence within, but it really explores kind of the consequences of violence in a way most gangster films do not. Um, yeah, I really loved it. All right. Um, I don't think you wanted to had anything to say about Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I mean, it's out already. Everyone yeah. can watch it, but it's tremendous. Okay. Um, and then uh, four minutes again, Tyler, because Scott, I think you and I have both seen Bird Box yeah. now. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, I'll tell a bit of a story at the beginning, Yeah, which is that, uh, I went to the premiere at AFI Fest and Susanna Beer, the director, uh, introduced the cast. This is where they do the introductions at AFI Fest. They bring out the cast. It's enough of the cast shows up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I remember one year I went to the opening night film, which was Hitchcock and like one person from the cast oh, showed up. Uh, um, uh, and so Susanna Beer butchered David Dusmalchian's name. No. <laughs> she was like, David Demlechian. And he, came out, he just came out laughing. And I thought that was funny. He's in like one scene in the movie and he's got a crazy last name. Two days, two days later, I was at the widow's screening and Steve McQueen butchered or mispronounced Elizabeth Debicki's name. <laughs> one of the three leads of the movie. He was like, Elizabeth Dubicki. Um, <laughs> Maybe so he I, never had to say her last name. I guess not. Um, anyway, Maybe he didn't direct any of her scenes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably. I've that. got my theories. Um, so yeah, uh, Bird Box un- is just uh, unfortunately. I thought it was a real a real snooze. Um, I feel like there are certain movies that are horror movies, but think they're better than that. And I feel yeah. like this is a pretty like run of the mill 
survival horror story that happens to have a kind of prestige level cast almost i guess um with sandra bullock and john malkovich and jackie weaver um and tom hollander uh is in it and there's a david desmalchian did you say sarah paulson uh sarah paulson yeah yeah that's right and javante rhodes um i'm sure i'm missing i'm leaving people out oh machine gun kelly the obviously uh or the the rapper whom i let susan up here introduced him by his name which is like colson baker or something <laughs> and because i know who he is she, she was like called him like uzi and stuff like that <laughs> no she's like colson baker and then machine gun kelly who's like six and a half feet tall and rail thin and wearing like a bright green smoking jacket comes out and i just laughed um, uh, and i was sitting in the front row uh anyway next to a woman who had brought a miscongeniality poster <laughs> to try and get it signed didn't happen uh but i've talked for more than my half what a uh, no, I mean, I think you're right in that it doesn't take a great deal of interest in its horror tropes, but also doesn't seem to know what it wants to replace that with. Uh, it's kind of divided into two parts, one of which you see kind of the immediacy of this apocalyptic event, and then the second, not really half, it like cuts between the two. The second part is five years later when Sandra Bullock's trying to take two kids down a river to get to some destination that we end up finding about, but I won't give away. Yeah. Um, and that part feels like it's really getting into something where it's like clearly from the very first scene, you know that she has difficulty emotionally bonding with these kids and you can kind of tell the arc is going to be about her accepting a sort of motherhood status. Uh, <clears throat> but then like all the stuff in the past doesn't relate to that at all. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just dealing with, this group of people trapped in a house, none of whom we really care about because we're yeah. pretty sure they're all going to die and we're not given much emotional stakes with them in the meantime. It's just kind of going through these very boilerplate apocalyptic tropes. Well, I did have some, uh, a bit of a metatextual reading about the okay. survival horror in, in which everyone sort of, oh, and I, I left off Lil Rel Howery um, mm. from the cast, but everyone sort of, the movie's so cliche that everyone sort of falls into the roles you expect. You know, John Malkovich is the Ty Burrell and Dawn of the Dead. Right. <laughs> you know, he's the asshole and um, one of them's the coward and one of right, them's the, sure. And, and uh, I did kind of equate that to maybe Sandra Bullock's character being pregnant and being felt like she's being relegated to a role that she doesn't necessarily want. She doesn't, she, she might want to have kids, but she doesn't want to be right. a mother. And so when people keep telling her like, no, I, I'll do this, you know, you need to sit down or whatever you're, you're mm-hmm. pregnant or whatever. I don't know if that was intentional, but I, I think it was just a lot. too many people, though, for how little we were in there. It felt like a recap of a first season of a show you we weren't watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are. Yeah, I did notice there are a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, I noticed, but I, did, I, I thought about like, yeah, usually when you have these things, there's not this many people. Yeah. Uh, or if it is, but, it's the entire movie and not half of the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, but they do get rid of a number of them. Do they ever? Uh, I mean, some of them very quickly. And then there is a big sort of like culling of characters <laughs> at a certain point. Do you think this woman who brought the miscongeniality poster <laughs> enjoyed the film? She left. <laughs> so she waited in line with us to like clearly reserve a ticket because tickets to AFI Fest are free. Oh yeah. We have to get into AFI right. Fest itself at some point, maybe like the halfway point we'll okay. do cause I'm complaining. Um, she like waited in line for an hour and a half or whatever. Got in, got to the front row, sat there with her miscongeniality poster, saw Sandra Bullock walked out as like Susanna Beaver was like, okay, thank you. And everyone started walking back in. She like kind of leaned forward and held up the poster and then like the lights were already dimming. And so then she just left. <laughs> that makes me so sad. But that, I don't know. I, I guess if I you're know, an autograph hound, you should know that there's a time and place. 
And front row at the premiere is not the, the, right. Is neither of those things. Yeah. I just feel I know, but I just feel bad for that person. I don't know why. Yeah, she seemed nice. <laughs> okay. Um, next. Okay. Yes. Next. Uh, another four minutes uh, for Cold War, which is a movie that I liked a lot, but Scott loved it, so uh, he should go first. Yeah. I. This is the best film at AFI Fest, and so far my number one for the year. Um, it's a new film from. Pavel Pavlikovsky. Did you already say Cold War? It's called Cold War. Yes, I did say Cold War. Um, it is the other uh, mismatched lovers go down a tragic romance path around music. In a <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, I like Star is Born, but this is better. Um, it's about this guy named Victor who, with uh, his part his kind of professional partner. And I, I got the sense at one point they may have had some kind of relationship. Uh, they're trying to start oh, kind know. of a musical academy in post-war Poland. Uh, one of the students they recruit is uh, a young woman named Zula played by Joanna Kulig. Uh, and the two of them, Victor and Zula quickly form a romantic bond that uh, really is clearly not meant to be. I think the psychological underpinnings of the war are very pervasive throughout the film and the way it explores the trauma of that without particularly naming it is really effective. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's clear from the start they're doomed, but you're not really sure why. And each it's, it takes place over like 20 years, but it's only an 89 minute film. And each scene conveys so much about these two people. It's really quite astonishing. And I couldn't believe it was so short or over as fast as it was, which is also kind of, the emotional point of the film and like uh Pavlikovsky's last film Ida it's beautifully shot and I think less strict about the way it's shot um it will break the aesthetic completely in the middle of a scene if it needs to um and yeah it's just a really really beautiful really effective film and the music in it is incredible it is, goes from kind of the post-war very proper kind of operatic tones uh, into kind of poppy music in the early 60s and i think it's all somewhat original music i really hope they're releasing some kind of soundtrack because it's all beautifully done um i want to echo something you said because i i also liked it a lot um you, you talked about how w with such economy it gets across so much about the characters and their feelings i felt that way about the politics and the and, and the culture and the society around yeah them. absolutely the amount again in an 89 minute movie the amount that you're able to understand despite huge leaps in time and just seeing things in the context of these, these characters living in them how much things change because you know communist eastern europe wasn't um, i wasn't just like it existed from it didn't just exist as the same thing for 45 years. It it broke down and became more and more authoritarian right. over time. And I think the way, the ways that those things are able to be gotten across without it actually being the focus of the movie, uh, was really astonishingly well done. It, yeah. It, it was very evocative of a lot of things. My only problem is that I think both of the, I think the performances are good, but I think both of the characters are kind of drips and I didn't want to, I wouldn't want to run off and have a, an affair with either one of them. Oh, uh, you and I have very different feelings about <laughs> Joanna Kulig, who I'm yeah. now deeply in love with. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but I also think that's, germane to the film i think the fact that neither of them are really capable of totally loving somebody else and totally giving their lives over to something else is the point and you know to a certain extent they're only happy when they're apart and at wanting each other and when they're together they can't really make it work 
but uh, I, I don't know. Like I said, I think there's so much trauma inflicted on the characters that I don't think any like strictly romantic reading of the film is going to quite suffice. All right. Uh, it's going to be your turn for a while here. Uh, Dead Horse Nebula. Yeah. Uh, so this film is a very strange avant-garde film. It won Best Emerging Director at the Locarno Film Festival, and that festival has kind of become amongst a certain crowd of which I'm loosely a part, um, a festival to celebrate. They think their taste is really strong. Uh, this is, uh, uh, what's the director's name? <laughs> Tariq Atkus. Atkus. Octus. Octus. So the crowd you're talking about, are the kind of people who would not call this movie dead horse nebula, they would say the Octus. <laughs> I'm Have glad you, you brought this up and, uh, we can, we can probably pause my time to discuss this <laughs> briefly. Um, because I remember you mentioned this I'll on a it. different episode. Okay. Um, I'll just say in defense, I tend not to do that I, because you I weren't doing it. Yeah. But I know. you also weren't on my side in trying I, to not to laugh at it. <laughs> no, I, I guess I've gotten used to it because I do find it annoying, but at the same time, I understand that, you know, it's t- sometimes d- difficult to keep track of everything that's playing at a festival. Yeah. And sometimes you are going for the director of a movie. Yeah. And absolutely. so this is, I'm the, I'm, this is not a judgment on the people who do that <laughs> at all. I just think it's funny. It is funny, but you brought up the Hong Sang Soo in particular, and that guy releases like two movies a year and you right. cannot always remember which location <laughs> it's referring to or which character or, you know, some combination thereof. And you're just like, I'm here for the Hong. Yeah. It's an easy okay. shorthand. There you go. All right. I'm glad we addressed it. <laughs> so there's kind of a few different types of avant-garde movies that i've seen recently this is the type where it's characters engaged in a very mundane activity and then it has a completely batch of crazy ending um for about the first third of the movie they're trying to take a dead horse out of a ditch uh in the countryside the second half is uh, at a construction site and it's mostly about people going through the mundane tasks of each of those activities and then it ends in kind of an ecstatic, strange, weird moment that kind of, you know, for a 70-minute movie or so, I'd say made it worth it. Um, so that's Dead Horse Nebula. The other dead animal movie I saw, of frankly many, uh, these were just the two that happened to put it in their title, uh, is Dead Pigs, which is a Chinese film by Kathy Yan, probably most notable for general film interest in that she's going to direct the Birds of Prey movie, uh, which is a very strange choice given that this is a satire of Chinese culture. I don't know how that ended up equating to a comic book movie, but fair enough. But for one, I'm so glad that for once someone... A woman makes the right. indie or for or art house or foreign splash and then gets called over to make the yeah. completely uh, characterless. And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we liked what you did. Come wash all that off of yourself right. and make this boilerplate. I movie. mean, if it helps, I don't think this is a very dense or terribly interesting movie. Okay. Um, part of it is that I'm not big on satire to begin with and even less so when it's just over two hours long. Uh, the premise starts to wear a little thin. I think there's probably too many characters. It's trying to cover too much of modern Shanghai and encapsulating that all into kind of a humorous bent. Um, but it kind of loosely revolves around uh, this company trying to buy up property in kind of the outskirts of Shanghai and kind of dealing with modernization and all that kind of stuff. And it's about a woman just holding out on that offer and about the uh, business tycoon who's trying to take it over and uh, pig farmer whose pigs keep dying along with 
thousands. Uh, this was a very dead animal friendly AFI uh, fest. And, <laughs> uh, so it, it has some, some strong points. It has some very good performances and some jokes related to land. And maybe if I was more familiar with modern China, it would have gotten across more. But again, for a two hour satire, there's very few that have worked with me. Um, before we move on, move on, I should mention to the listeners in case they're worried, the birds in Bird Box, they make it. They sure do. The birds do make it. They're in a box, but aren't we all, David? <laughs> I'm going to add to your time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next, on, from, oh, sorry, David should introduce each title. He seems to. Oh, you know what you're doing. <laughs> next is uh, Diamantino, which yeah. I'm guessing is a biopic of the guy who played Moe in the Three Stooges movie. You are correct. <laughs> What? <laughs> Chris Diamantopoulos? What a strange thing to know. Well, he's also known as the three commas asshole on Silicon Valley. That's right. And okay. he's known to Hannibal fans as the social worker who was sewed up inside a horse alive. Oh, yeah. That's right. Right. That was a good episode. Uh, yeah. I did not care for the comedic duo of uh, the crime scene investigator guys in uh, Hannibal, by the way. Scott Thompson and Aaron Abrams? Yeah, not a fan. Oh. Thought it was a real dragon every episode they were in. Uh, no, I, I loved them, and not well, just because you know all, all about being a drag on episodes. <laughs> uh, I liked them but mostly because Aaron Abrams used to retweet my handle tweets. <laughs> hey, fair enough. <laughs> That's why I like them. You really uh, should lead with those, with, with those little tidbits, because it would explain a lot more. Okay, Scott, take us. Diamantino is a Portuguese film about a soccer player who begins the film by explaining that he plays soccer so well because he visualizes himself playing amongst giant fluffy puppies um, and kind of only gets stranger from there. It, he eventually gets roped into kind of a steroid disc scheme uh, to make him a super soccer player, but he's also getting very down on the sport after he missed a very key goal and has had his consciousness uh, awoken by the refugee crisis. Uh, this is a very uh, ambitious film for 80 some minutes and it doesn't totally get there, but him playing soccer amongst the fluffy puppies is a joy to watch. Okay. Um, I'll skip through Dogman because you can hear me talk about it on the TIFF uh, episode. I'll just reiterate that I liked it. I feel like it's uh, not getting great reviews, but I tend to like Matteo Garon's um, sort of uh, blend of humanism and misanthropy. Uh, and then everybody knows I didn't like I'll start with on the, t- on the TIFF episode. Let's see. The favorite, you, Tyler, or Scott, you and I have both seen. I liked it more than you did. Yeah. In fact, I like it more the more I think about it. If, I, if we were doing our top 10 episode today, honorable mention. I do want to just mention real quick that although I'm not super high on it, uh, Emma Stone just keeps getting better and better. Um, and for an actress who I've always liked, but who I thought had a very specific range, she just keeps surprising me. Okay. Um, Olivia Coleman fans also won't be uh, disappointed or fans of uh, It Boy Joe Alwyn. Uh, <laughs> I wondered if you could bring that up. He's on it in another film uh, somewhere on this list. Oh, I'm sure we'll, we'll have another chance. Uh, okay, so then uh, what is Genesis? Uh, Genesis is a film by uh, Canadian, the French Canadian part of Canada, a director of Philippe Lesage. Um, it's about a brother and sister who are in slightly different phases of their school career. She's at the beginning of college. He's at the end of high school or the French Canadian equivalent. I can't couldn't quite get a handle on their educational system throughout the film. Uh, but, uh, it's mostly hockey, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's a hockey based curriculum. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Um, he is kind of going through a certain sexual awakening of discovering his, uh, 
or yeah, coming coming out to himself at least in some capacity as a gay man. Um, and unlike most, I think films not only about coming people coming out, but just about young artistic types in general. He's not like the shyest getting class. He's actually incredibly popular and incredibly outgoing. Um, and so the more he comes to terms with who he is, the more kind of balance that strikes against kind of his reputation. You know, he has more at stake, I guess, socially to lose um, if he were to come out. And so the struggle there, I, I think, feels more externalized than it tends to in these sorts of films, which is a very interesting uh, tack. And I didn't write down the actor's name, but the guy who plays him is really incredibly charming and very good. Uh, his sister's storyline is, I think, a little less effective. It tries to take on, I think, a little too much. Um, and Lesage doesn't seem to have as keen an insight into young women's experience beyond kind of the stuff you read about online about sexual harassment and that kind of stuff. Um, but she doesn't, her interior life seems a little shallower than uh, the male characters. Um, but the, probably the most interesting thing about this film is that the last 20 minutes have nothing to do with anything we've seen before. It takes a complete departure to a whole other storyline that reflects the film's themes in some way and builds on them in a way that the main storyline couldn't. Um, so it was a really ambitious choice. I don't know if it totally pays off, but I was kind of delighted that it just took it to begin with. And it's a really compelling story in and of itself. So. What was the name of that one again? Genesis. Okay. Uh, all right. So Green Book is already out nationwide. I didn't care for it. Scott, you liked it a little more than I did. Yeah, I think just because I view it more straightforwardly as a comedy and you were a little bit more bothered by uh, the dramatic failings, which are quite notable, I'll say. But uh, because I was approaching it mainly as a comedy, it made me laugh a lot. And that goes a long way. Um, uh, and then Her Smell, you haven't seen. No. Uh, it is, if it were coming out in 2018, it would be a top five for me. It is uh, my favorite film that I saw at TIFF uh, with Three Faces a close second. Uh, but definitely, it's it has a release date now, a U.S. release date in March, I think. Yeah. So definitely put Her Smell on your radar for March. Yeah. The next is... <laughs> There's no... I, I, I've forgotten. You've gone past it. I've, yeah. said, I've said it so much. <laughs> I'm so glad, though, that... Cause I saw it at TIFF and I'd like, didn't really, cause I, like I've talked about when I was at TIFF, I didn't run into anybody. Right. <laughs> so I didn't really get a sense of like the people I knew if they, cause I saw it and I was like, I love this. I also wonder if people are going to hate it. But now that it's played AFI and a lot of people that I know have seen it, it seems like people really like it. Yeah. So I'm really happy that I, uh, I think it's getting the respect it deserves. But the, the upshot of that is that I've now talked about the movie so much that I've forgotten that it has such a <laughs> stupid name. Uh, all right. So next up is the Hong. <laughs> um, it's called hotel by the river. Uh, and, um, I don't know if I have picked a, uh, favorite film that I saw at AFI fest, uh, this year, but hotel by the river is definitely in the running. Um, I just talked a bunch. You recap this one. Oh, okay. So, uh, this is a story about, uh, five people, three men and two women, um, at, at a hotel. There's one man and one woman staying there. They don't know each other. The man's a poet. The woman is, uh, I forget what she's, what her, I don't uh, think she has a clear cut profession, okay. but she's just gotten out of a, uh, he's a poet staying there because the owner of the hotel is a fan of his poetry and has put him up for free. She's staying there because she's just gotten out of a relationship. It sounds like, yeah. Uh, her friend comes to visit her. His sons come to visit him. They sort of all, uh, hang around the hotel and sort of cross paths and bump into and off of each other over the course of the, uh, 
it was a one day, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. It yeah, felt it longer is. than that, but because they, na- they nap in the middle of the day. That's it. <laughs> and, um, uh, and uh, that gets me into something that I really love about the movie is I love that, um, that Hong Sing Su sort of like, will sometimes imply that maybe there's something a little metaphysical or supernatural going on in his movies. Um, and sometimes maybe there is. And here I feel like there was a almost like self-aware most of the times it would like introduce something like, cause they take a nap there. There's a There's a part where suddenly the, the outside of the cafe did not have snow. And suddenly there's like a foot of snow. Yeah. And then, and it's like, uh, Oh, what happened? And then they actually comment on, Oh, well, there was a big snowfall while we were napping. Like, it, yeah, it seems like, Oh, are they transported to somewhere? And there's a whole other part where the son or the two sons and the father can't find each other. And it does sort of suggest like, Oh, it's some sort of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing where they're like, there's an episode with Willow uh, where they're both in the same place, but they're on like different planes. Right. They can't see each other. It's like, Oh, what's going on here? And then the movie, um, the biggest laugh of the movie actually <laughs> yeah. is when he finds his son. Yeah. And it's like, I was right over there. <laughs> um, well, it's especially funny because he's outside and they're like waving at each other, like pointing. And then it turns out there's a door like three feet away. Not, not even through, that's the joke yeah. is that they're trying to talk to the door yeah. and then he makes a gesture, like almost like he's saying, go down to where the door, <laughs> is and the camera moves and the door's literally right there um uh tyler doesn't find any of this very funny apparently sorry i was thinking of other things uh okay um uh but then there's another uh the my favorite single shot of the movie is the one that has a cat in it in which uh there might maybe there is some sort of uh thing going on there um with with uh uh, who that cat? I don't know. What did, what did, what did you, I don't want to give too much away. Did you have any interpretation of the cat? The cat in particular? No. Yeah. Um, I, but I think in general, by nature of the setup, you know, there, it seems to just be these five people at the hotel plus the desk clerk. Plus do we meet the owner very briefly? Uh, I don't no, think we, we do. No, yeah. He, we he never goes see him. out to the lobby to talk yeah, to him, but we, we never see the conversation. Um, so because it's just these people in this, otherwise abandoned hotel by a river that's covered in snow. There's a very purgatorial quality to the movie. Yeah. Um, and because the poet announces very early on that he has this premonition that he's going to die. He doesn't really have a reason. He just feels like he's going to die. And that's why he brought his sons there. Um, so it kind of all feels very detached from reality. And I think things like the cat and things like the snow are just kind of these found elements that yeah. he, that Hong used to kind of heighten the surreality of it. Um, he announces at the beginning of the movie and he reads the credits over them um, and announces that it was filmed over two weeks. And it just feels like he just found these random things within the two weeks. There's also kind of a short montage of the poet kind of bumbling around town and joyously uh, splitting a log for probably the first time in his life by the expression on his face. Yeah, he splits a log Um, and then he pets some dogs. Yeah. Uh, Uh, And it's just these kind of found moments that I think Hong is embracing more as he's gotten older. Uh, When I first got into his films, which was around 2011, 2012, they were very schematic and very kind of driven by these arch premises involving people running into each other and coming back into contact and slight variations on scenes we've seen before, but more and more he's just going for very spur of the moment, uh, improvisational qualities that I think are really still effective. And I think are actually more effective. I've really come to like his work more and more as it goes along. Uh, all right. Um, and I should probably go watch those early films, but, um, because I came later to Hong than you did, but, uh, I, I, I like these. Found yeah. Films. I mean, I'll just say that in, his best work to me has been in the last couple of years. So you're, you're on the better end of things. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I probably still like 
was it was last year on the beach night alone it uh, came out in the u.s last year but it was two years ago okay that premiered um i think i still probably like that better but hotel by the river is a contender because it's so funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, for sure I, I did not expect to laugh that much and it's filmed in black and white and it's absolutely beautiful oh yeah too, that's true say. uh all right you're up next yeah uh i love this movie it's called i do not care if we go down in history as barbarians it's a new film from radu jude it's probably pronounced differently because he's romanian so who's to say um his not his most recent film but his last kind of released film was called afarim with an exclamation point right. uh that made quite a splash is this very uh beautifully shot black and white 35 millimeter uh widescreen scope you know very stately film very funny too uh, and this is a complete departure it's 16 millimeter mostly handheld and then there's a whole section of the film that's in these very kind of cheap uh tv kind of digital camera because they put on a live event uh the film is about a woman who's a theatrical director who's putting together a live reenactment of a Romanian military campaign of her choosing. She ends up choosing uh, the Odessa massacre, which if you're not familiar with it is this event in which Romanian soldiers kind of mass exterminated uh, Jewish people at the beginning of world war two. And this was even like at the beginning of concentration camps in Germany, this was not at a point in history when there was kind of a large international effort towards this. This was something very much that Romania was taking up on its own and which, because it's not well-known internationally, still has a very uneasy reputation inside of Romania. Um, I can't remember the military leader's name who ordered the attack, but anyway, he's still a very controversial figure. Um, there's a scene in which the woman's at a hotel and she points out that they're just airing in the middle of a movie a very, or in the middle of a day, a very positive movie about the character that when which is portrayed as like a military hero for the people and all that kind of stuff um so this event is by no means settled history in romanian culture at least that's the impression i got from the movie and the q a that followed uh and the movie is very much engaged in that dialogue about you know kind of the value of highlighting this it's supposed to be this event to celebrate romanian culture and romanian history and so she gets a lot of pushback of like is this really what we want to dredge up is this really want to focus on and she's like no we have to engage fully with our past and come to terms with what we've done you know we can't just sweep this under the rug um but then they actually put it on and it's just as horrifying to see it all play out as the way they've discussed, even though by this point in the movie, we know what's going to happen. Uh, we know kind of the broad strokes of the story and the way he films it, like I said, is this kind of live TV aesthetic. Like you would film a soccer game or something where it's kind of wide angle lenses and the camera resolution isn't quite high enough for like a big screen presentation. And you get very much a, you are there sense. And in the Q and a after they talked about that, they really put it on in a square in public and what the film comes to confront is, I think, the feeling that we've all had to confront internationally over the past uh, couple of years is realizing that the world is a great deal more bigoted and racist than we uh, thought we were at and a great deal more authoritarian leaning and that there's a comfort that a lot of people find in uh, expressing this side of themselves and feeling like they belong to a greater uh, authoritarian cause. And so the event does not exactly go as planned, but it, the sensation of watching the movie as a whole is uh, incredibly jarring um, because it's been this whole intellectual debate and now it's very much a visceral thing they have to all confront. Uh, and I won't say exactly how it ends, but I think it's a very 
sharp uh, dagger to certain intellectual tendencies to just kind of put this stuff as theoretical discussions. Uh, all right, I'm gonna. Uh, this will be real brief, but I'm gonna mention the first of the first of two tree movies. We each have a tree movie to talk about. Uh, mine is the Juniper Tree, uh, which is a restoration of a 1991 film, which was the acting debut of Bjork before she went on to make Dance in the Dark, and then swore she would never act again because Lars von Trier is a monster. Um, but uh, it's too bad because she's. And yet you were upset you missed his last film just last <laughs> night. <laughs> I, I do like his movies. Um, anyway. Um, so uh, the juniper tree is. So I guess I was expecting something maybe a little more Bjorky. It has sort of a <laughs> naturey name. I was like, oh, it's going to be like uh, you know, there's going to be creatures and all this stuff. And it does have that. But, I think um, we all know what you mean when you say yeah, Bjorky. Bjorky. Um, but what I did not expect is yet another movie uh, uh, at AFI Fest that's in black and white. Uh, I think Cold War and Hope Hold by the River and Juniper Tree. We're now at three movies in black and white. Um, uh, it's. Um, it's a lot uh, nastier and witchier than I expected. It's got some real witchcraft elements, which include some uh, upsetting things like, oh, cutting off the fingers from a corpse and uh, sewing them inside the corpse's mouth and stuff like that to uh, <laughs> in order to do spells. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool, and uh, Bjork is great. Uh, moving on, Scott? Yeah, uh, my next film is Lemonade. It's the other Romanian film. It's a Romanian-Canadian-American, kind of. Uh, it's the directing debut of a woman named Ioana Yurikaru, I'm going to say. Um, she had previously directed one of the segments of Christian Manju's, um what do you call it, omnibus film, uh, okay. Golden Age. Uh, she directed one of the segments of that, but this is her feature debut. It's about a woman who's emigrated to the U.S., theoretically under kind of a temporary nursing assignment, but she wants to find a way to stay there longer. So she ends up getting a green card marriage. This guy she's caring for, he needs long-term care and can't afford it. She needs to stay in America. They have a good arrangement going. It, the, the best part of this film, I think is not only the, it, sorry, especially the performance of the central woman. Uh, she's really incredible. She's in, I think every scene in the film and really conveys the, anxiety and desperation of the circumstances she's under uh narratively the best element of the film is that they never really revealed the extent to which they're married for strictly green card reasons and strictly or if there's some romance between the two it seems to be some mixture of the both that they both independently realize that there's something to be gained without ever strictly discussing it uh What's not as great about the film is that it was it's trying to pass off Canada as America, which it mostly does, except for the guy she's married to. And then the caseworker who's determining if their marriage is legitimate have fairly thick Canadian accents um, and don't quite come across as these very archetypical elements of America that they're supposed to. Uh, the guy she's married to, you know, he's like a blue collar construction worker. He owns a gun that she's not comfortable with. And they both, and he's kind of the caseworker is kind of a sleaze bag and he's using this as an opportunity uh, for sexual exploitation. And it's these kind of, elements that we're all engaging with very much in America. I don't know the extent to which they're engaged with Canada, but as the movie's supposed to be set in America, uh, and especially as the characters get more emotional and more angry in their scenes, uh, the Canadian accents come out more and more, <laughs> and it does take away a little bit of the desperation and drama of it, even though, I mean, the shape of the film is very good. It's very well directed. She kind of studied under Christian Manju, and you can definitely see the influence from, like, 
four months, three weeks, and two days of these people coming up against these systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish that uh, she was as good at directing the English language performances as she was the Romanian actress. There's a. Uh, did you guys watch in the '90s the X Men cartoon series? A, a, a little, a little bit. In retrospect, like if you go back and watch, you realize, like, okay, they cast this entire thing out of Canada. Okay, uh, <laughs> That's funny. Wolverine is Canadian, so it's That's fine. fine. But yeah. like, but you'll have Cyclops being like, "I'm sorry, Professor." <laughs> and it's just like, oh boy, <laughs> it's really distracting. Do you remember Tyler? I know because uh, you watched Amazing Race. Do you remember a few years ago there were the two sisters from Minnesota? Oh yes, and they sort of what what Scott was just saying. There's a part where they get into an argument with each other that my wife and I, Natalie and I, still quote and laugh because it's just one sister says to the other, "Don't be so nonchalant about it." <laughs> it's the cutest argument yeah. you've ever heard. Um, it's, you've got so many minutes. You've got the O's and the nonchalant. Don't be so nonchalant about it. Uh, all right. Um, uh, oh, you're up again. Yeah, have you not seen Mary Queen of Scots? No, there's been, been no screenings that I can make it to. Yeah, been a lot of screenings. I'm I know, I'm a busy, busy um, guy. And I was... <laughs> Excuse me. I've been out of the country. Yeah. And then I was out of the state. You sure were. And then uh, there was AFI Fest, obviously. And, and now he's out of his mind. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I still have... I still... I feel like this is such a privileged film critic it, thing to be like, I still haven't seen this movie that doesn't come out for three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's okay. You can probably skip it. Uh, I, I'm not really that big on throne drama to begin with, and this is very much a throne drama film uh, about two queens vying for control of England. Uh, See, that is my... my I kind of... Yeah, I, I, I don't care. Anytime people are like, but the Lynn I'm like, I'm so far gone. And this is, this is helped by the fact that it stars Sir Sharona and Margot Robbie as the two Queens. And they're both very good. I really admire the extent to which Margot Robbie is uh, comfortable with just doing away with her beauty very early on as her character becomes sicker and sicker throughout the film. Uh, She becomes more and more physically uh, repulsive. And uh, Margot Robbie is not shy at all about swinging right into that. Uh, But I swear every scene in this movie is like 30 seconds long and it just flies by and I couldn't get a handle on whatever was the hell was going on at any point. Um, it's directed by Josie Rourke, who is, I guess, a theater director. This is her first film and it's written by Bo Willingham, Willington, whoever the house of cards guy is. Um, uh, Willeman, I think. Willeman. All right. It feels like both of them recognize that movies tend to have shorter scenes than either plays or TV shows but didn't realize that, you know, you still needed to draw it out and get some drama to it. It just, it went by in a flash. And like I said, throne drama is not my bag to begin with. So I couldn't follow this to save my life. Oh, see, um, that's funny. Cause I'm the one like watching the favorite, which is not at all about the reign of queen Anne. And I'm thinking about like, okay, so that war with France. Okay. So, cause I'm trying to like, right. together in my mind, like the politics of it, the politics and who like, uh, Sarah's husband and Rachel Weiss's husband is anyway. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about. So, uh, while I was in Chicago, I went to, uh, this movie theater, uh, three times, uh, the, uh, century landmark at, uh, Clark and diversity. And, uh, and I, you just see the same trailers over and over again. And they showed Mary queen of Scott and then immediately followed it with the favorite. And I was just like, boy, Mary queen of Scots is not going to win this. Like yeah. just, <laughs> when you watch them like one right after another, it's like, 
I love Saoirse Ronan and yeah. Margot Robbie looks like she's doing good work and it looks like thematically it's exploring some interesting stuff about like these two women are not actually at war with each other, but the insecure men that are advising right. them like push them towards one another. It's like, that's an interesting idea. And it's like, Oh, that's looking, that's looking pretty good. Then the favorite comes along and it's just got that edge to it. And it just it has some so personality. Much, it feels so much more original. And it's just like, Oh boy, if I had to make a choice, yeah. it's no choice at all. Um, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break and talk about the festival sure. itself. Uh, because this is one that you and I very slightly disagree on. <laughs> I just have a sticking point. But uh, why don't you start since you liked it? Uh, sure. It, this is called My. It's a new film by Mia Hansen Love. Uh, it's about a journalist who's just come back from being some kind of prisoner in Syria. Syria. Uh, and again, you're not thinking about the global politics no. while you're watching the movie. <laughs> I mean, it's not the central focus of the movie either, yeah. to be fair, in this case. Um, so he's just returned safely. Uh, the government's negotiated him out, uh, but one of his colleagues is still left overseas. Uh, it's him and another guy are, were able to get out, though. Um, and so he keeps insisting that he's not really affected by this, that he just wants to get back to work, but he's willing to take a slight sabbatical to go to India, where his family has some property. He has some family still there and his godfather uh, lives there. So he'll go visit them, go check in on this family property and just kind of get away from it all for a little bit. And it's very much about actually related to all good about somebody trying to put a tragedy behind them and the ways people do that. And in this case, the way he feels he's successful in doing it and the extent to which he's not really concerned with the damage he might be doing along the way. Um, Obviously, so you're talking about all the stuff I liked about it right now, right? Um, but the title itself refers to his godfather's daughter, who's probably you know, 16, 17. Um, she is a student. She was just returning from a stint in London where she wants to return. She's kind of sick of India, wants to go back to the cosmopolitan life. And so she kind of bonds with uh, the main character whose name I didn't write down. And I can't remember now for the life of me. Um, that's, yeah, no. that's my uh, throne drama. Is I, I don't know the, I don't <laughs> know the names of the characters. By, by um, the time I walk out of the theater, I forgot the names of the characters. But yeah, so he's 30 something, she's 16, 17. And if you think a French movie is not going to get them together, uh, <laughs> you need to watch more French movies. Um, but so this film is taking on two elements that are always hashtag problematic of white guy goes abroad to an exotic culture and gets rejuvenated and white guy engages in a relationship with a much younger woman and gets rejuvenated. But I think Mia Hansen love is uh, tuned to the fact that he's using both of these elements for his own uh, betterment and that that is troublesome. And I think the discomfort we're meant to feel is, very intentional and I think she engages with it smartly and just letting it play out and letting us consider that without damning him for it and maybe considering that you know he is a victim of great trauma and he's not really hurting too many people or not really hurting anybody throughout the course of this but he is leaving some trauma of his own in his wake and it puts us in an uncertain moral territory which I'm always refreshed by but it's not just that he's not, I mean, you say he's not hurting anyone, but he, by being this white European who has right. familial roots in India, he's part of a legacy of colonization. And like he's, there's damage that he's done before he even shows up. And that's what I liked about, I, I really liked uh, the sort of cheeky way that uh, 
Mini Hanson Love introduces him in the most sympathetic way possible. He's just right. been through this horrible ordeal, and then it it sort of over the course of the movie, I dawned on the it increasingly dawned on me that he was not necessarily the best guy or not the most thoughtful guy. And I feel like the movie is it. I don't want to say critiquing because I think it's actually very sly in the way that it doesn't judge him, but doesn't glorify him either. Yeah. And that's sort of what I was trying to get at. Yeah. And and so over the course of the movie, you see like, uh, that he, what he represents, you've got the, um, uh, younger generation of the Indian characters, uh, like the kids who hang out right. at his house, sort of um, representing a level of poverty, probably that he has doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, do you know what sure. I, mean? um, uh, I don't know. Tyler's given us the. No, we're going to go over time. I've <laughs> gone short on plenty of stuff. We can go over on this one. Um, but yeah, uh, all of that. Yeah, all that is to say is that the yeah the imbalance in the age is a thing that maybe I need to talk to my therapist. <laughs> It takes me out of movies um, uh, a little, a little too much. Um, is it that you you imagine the choices being made behind the scenes or within well, the see, story itself? It gets to you. See, Scott is making a good point that 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 me Hanson Love is aware, but I, I think a part of me wants. This is the thing that is more me. I want a movie to. I generally don't want movies to judge the characters, but for some reason I want the movie to be like, in these cases I want to be like, no, that's, this is very wrong. She's like, you're saying she's 16. She's not an adult yet. You can't do this. Uh, but I, again, I think the movie's aware of that. I think, I think, I think you're right. I he, just, he resists for so long and tries to make all the right choices around her. Um, and then by the, eventually when he does give in, it's clear the pain that, his inability to commit to any kind of relationship is causing her, but he keeps going ahead with it anyway. I don't know about that. I agree with that. She seemed pretty resilient to me. She seems resilient. And I think she'll, you know, she's not going to drop out of school and go live on the streets or anything, but it's clear that this is a very key emotional experience in her life. And for him, it's very much a passing thing. Right. Okay. All right. Was that so bad, Tyler? (laughs) Hmm. Uh, I'm just saying you've used all up. Uh, you've used up like every every moment you went early before. <laughs> That's okay. fine. Uh, Maya, Maya so. deserves it, and unfortunately does not have distribution. Uh, I really hope it gets some. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I hope so too. I um, I think whatever year things to come came out 2016, maybe 2016. Uh, it was on my top ten that year. So I know I, I underrated that movie. That's great. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, is the same guy in Things to Come? Yes. Yeah, he, he's the. Yeah, and he's really good in Maya. He has a very yeah. uneasy energy to him that is really productive. So let's. Um, uh, so they also showed the Memphis Bell. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the Memphis Bell. I just like that they showed they they show cinema. They show old movies. They have a cinema treasures section, which I'll talk about. I talked about one, the Juniper Tree. I have more, a couple more to get to later. But I want to complain about AFI Fest. Sure, I love AFI Fest. I love the movies. I love seeing all the hongs and the Stricklands. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll say the, uh, first off that the movies they show are in some ways, major international productions that are well acclaimed throughout the year, but it's also still, I think a corner of cinema that is not even among cinephiles as beloved as it should be. And it's always struggling for business and always struggling for audiences. And it's 
great for a week to be immersed with people who really care about the stuff and are making an effort because this year you really had to make an effort you really did and there's no reason anybody who isn't desperate to see these movies would engage with any of it at all yeah it, it really is a problem um I mean, the rule that you and I both came up against that's ridiculous is that you literally, you weren't supposed to have laptops with you. Yeah. Which, although finally the press people emailed me on the last day of the festival being like, no, you can bring your laptops. Well, they should communicate to that. I told them next year, tell your security people that (laughs) I'm glad you said something because yeah, you weren't the only person. It happened to me too. Um, the other thing that I really hate because it's uh, the, we should say that the uh, AFI, Fest, AFI Fest takes place at the same complex as the TCM Film Festival. Yeah, the Highland or Hollywood and Highland Center. Yeah, at the TCL Theater. Um, which uh, I don't know if they just announced or if I just saw what the theme is of next year's uh, TCM. Did oh, you I see that? No, I didn't know. Because they announced the opening film was going to be When Harry Met Sally, and right so on. it's all love stories, or not all, but the theme is love yeah. stories, which I assumed you would be very excited about. I know that's uh, I love some romance. Yeah. Um, but here's the difference. TCM is so much fun. Yeah, it's a blast. <laughs> um, and part of it is that you feel like you're among a community of people. The And this is going to be difficult to describe to people who don't know the, the Hollywood Highlands and specifically the Chinese six cinemas. But there's a, there's a lobby that all six of the theaters, uh, there are six main theaters and there's the Chinese. And right. they also show a movie, the Egyptian. Uh, but for the most part, you're in those six main theaters. You're in these six main theaters. Uh, it's a lobby that's on the third floor of a mall. And that has two entrances, one that goes to the sort of atrium and stairwell and the other one that goes out to the food court. And you weren't allowed during AFI Fest to be in that lobby at all unless you had a physical ticket or a pass. Uh, and not just any physical ticket, a physical ticket for a movie that was yeah. starting next. And even if you had a pass, you had to say what movie you're specifically going to wait in line for. And not all the lines are inside for that matter. So it's not like everyone was hanging out. Most of the lines are outside. There's, yeah. I guess it's half and half. Yeah. And so you've got a film festival. The word festival is in the name, <laughs> right? It was people are coming, festive. No. People are coming to, uh, people in some cases coming from other parts of the country um, uh, to, to, see, to see movies they all want to see movies together, all care about the same thing. And you are so, they're so discouraging any sense of community or camaraderie hmm. or fun, you know, yeah. where like there's a, there's a bar in that lobby <laughs> and during TCM fest. It, yeah, it's full, but the bar is packed and it's fun. I mean, uh, Julie said she didn't, there's too many people at TCM fest, <laughs> uh, when I was making this complaint to her while we were waiting for a movie that I'll talk to, uh, talk about later. Um, but it, it just seems like, I mean, you, you already summed it up. Like, why would anyone put themselves through this? Yeah. Unless, unless you desperately, unless you're insane like us and really just have to see the latest song sang Sue. Yeah. There's no reason why anyone would just come check out the movies at this festival and do so casually and doesn't foster curiosity in anyone, let alone community and the people who are there. I mean, um, if you do have a poster you want signed, obviously yeah, sure. this well, is the place to do I it. I was going to save the, the Chinese theater for, for next because that has its own set of problems. Well, I didn't go to anything in the Chinese. Um, um, but I was just going to say that, yeah, it's all in the name of the security, that it's an open mall. If you wanted to do damage in that theater, that system is not going to stop anybody. <laughs> um, that's a chilling thought. Uh, no, I'm just like, I'm all in favor of keeping people safe. And I know it's a dangerous world out there. And you know, it's a whole separate ramp, but obviously politics are not going to solve us the problem anytime soon. Uh, so in the meantime, I do need, know we need heightened security, but they can't just be these empty gestures that just punish people for no reason. Like, yeah. 
when you look at the situation, like it's very clear that if someone did want to come in and shoot it up or blow it up or whatever else, they easily could. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, making a stand outside until whatever amount of time before the movie that we want to see. Yeah. We have a ticket for, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't help this. The, the next thing that really pissed me off, uh, is for bird box. So the way the Chinese, so, uh, um, for most tickets or for most screenings at, um, at AFI, the thing that you have that you bought online and printed out, it's called a ticket. The same thing for the Chinese is called a voucher. And the reason that it's called a voucher is because when you get to the front of the line, when they let you in, you hand them that, they hand you a ticket with an assigned seat number on it. Um, which I, that is, I'm not opposed to, except what they need to do is order that stack of tickets in such a way so that people like me who showed up a fucking hour and a half early and got a good <laughs> spot in line don't end up front row all the way house left. That's yeah. ridiculous that someone who showed up an hour after I did would get a better seat to Bird Box. I mean, it's partially because they start giving away the reserved seats, which they're not going to do. That's true. For Bird Box, it's a, it's a, it was literally the premiere of the movie, like yeah. the world premiere of the movie. So there were a lot of reserved seats. But... Um, I, but I just know because I looked there are people who came in after I did who had better seats because they obviously aren't uh, thinking they need to you need to order that stack of tickets from most desirable right. to least desirable seats so that you don't punish people for showing up early. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that's completely, completely ridiculous. Um, they also the widows, uh, they. Uh, this is a, a petty complaint because I like to have a drink, but um, I showed that they were so late um, because, oh, yeah, this is what happened. <laughs> they started letting people in for widows. And then that stack of tickets that I was telling you about, they ran. They lost the rest of them or something. So then I was standing. The, the movie ended up starting way late. I just late. imagine one of them like sneezed into it. And <laughs> yeah. just went all over the place like um, feathers. So we're standing there forever in the hallway up by the um, the. The candy store suite, which is real quick, real aside, a quick aside. There was a very annoying person. Maybe part of the reason I was so annoyed and wanted to drink the line for widows is there was a very annoying person behind me who was talking loudly on his phone the entire time, hitting on women in line, asking he asked some woman that he just met to go to a Christmas tree lighting with him the next day. <laughs> that he was super loud. And he was telling his friend, "I'm in line with two with two girls." Um, uh, and geez. then he was also saying very loud in line. He was like, "Oh, you didn't hear about so and so broke up with his." or so-and-so got dumped it's because he wouldn't eat her pussy he, <laughs> he wouldn't eat her pussy because he told her it was religious reason, reasons but actually is because she was too large and she dumped him <laughs> he's saying this super loud and then he's trying to get his friend to meet him in line and i wanted to go to the phone from him and tell him because his friend was like are you sure this wasn't like a judd apatow movie being yeah. filmed near <laughs> you uh, his friend was clearly up at the because is at the chinese theater clearly had gone up to the multiplex area and he was trying to give him directions to the line, but he was giving him directions as if he were at the footprints outside the Chinese. Oh, boy. Like he was telling him to go down to the footprints to come in. And I was like, I wanted to grab the phone and be like, step outside and look to your left. You'll see us come down the stairs. <laughs> but no, he kept saying, and the reason that I mean, that I thought of this when we laughed so hard is we were standing, there's a big, again, people don't know the Hollywood and Highland. There's an enormous candy store called sweet. Uh, it's great. I love it. Um, and when the line for the Chinese goes right, right alongside it and he kept saying, 
uh, we're standing next to the sugar store. <laughs> you know what the sugar store is? Come up to the sugar store, and we're standing next to the sugar store. He kept calling it. A, I was like texting my wife. This guy's calling it a sugar store. But it was hilarious. Um, just implies and, there's a store with just big mountains of sugar. In yeah. It. Um, yeah. I imagine like big cubes. You have to like pick up with like one of those ice picks from old westerns. Um, uh, so anyway, so we're waiting forever to get tickets from them to finally print off or find the other tickets. So they finally let us in. Um, it's at this point, you know, the movie was supposed to start at 7.30. They started letting us in at like 6.45. It's at this point almost 7.45. They haven't started the movie yet, thank God. But I get my, or I know where my seat is. So I go to the bar and they're packing up. And I was like, is this, are you closed? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, is the other bar open? And they were like, nope. <laughs> and, and I was like, why? And they were like, they made us stop serving at 725. And I was like, they didn't even let me in until 735. <laughs> and they were like, I was clearly losing my temper a little bit, but the bartenders were like, we're on your side, man. We want tips. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is bullshit that they, but uh, AFI Fest, I guess, made them stop serving five minutes before the scheduled start time right. of the movie, even though we didn't start till almost eight. Uh, anyway, <laughs> do we have any more complaints? No, cover the basics. Okay. Oh, there was a woman who was hacking incredibly oh, That's right. <laughs> yes, your friend. Yes. That is uh, uh, how, uh, uh, according to Jake, that's how she's now known. Your so friend. one movie we'll discuss later, this one, very nice. She was incredibly nice old woman sat next to me. Uh, and then halfway through the movie, she started hacking uncontrollably, very loudly through the rest of the movie. And like starting at like kind of the emotional climax. Of the oh, movie. sure. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, coughed through the rest of it. Maybe she was crying. Maybe that's how it sounds when she's uh, crying. No, I okay. was close enough that I could assess by, the situation. By close enough, you mean she was sitting next to you. Directly next to me. Uh, and then at a later movie, she was at the same movie as me, sat far enough away so it didn't really bother me. And then at Maya, the last movie, they, she once again sat right next to me. Well, it was funny because I was... Yeah. The fir- both, both the first and the last movies of the day, I was sitting right, right next to Scott. We were like, instead of essentially the same part of the theater, yeah. even though I think it was two different theaters, but same general place. Um, and, uh, so she comes in at the end, this is at the end of a day of seeing movies. And I immediately said like, Oh, Hey, there's your friend. And then, uh, I couldn't have written it better myself. She walked all the way up down the aisle and sat down right next to Scott. Maya starts, she starts coughing. I'm going to say, 40 seconds in the movie, 42 seconds in the movie, Scott picks up his bag and goes and sits somewhere else in the theater. Best decision I made in the whole festival. Um, but no, the funniest thing then was when um, uh, we the next morning we yeah. were all in line for the, uh, or we were all waiting for a Hotel by the River to start, um, and I had met your very kind friends that I then went on a podcast and made fun of. Um, uh, and it turned out like everyone had had yeah. some sort of encounter. This woman had like hit all the major screenings of this festival and annoyed everyone by <laughs> coughing through the entire movie. She's like Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's get back to the movies. Uh, I'm not going to go into Never Look Away. I've talked about it on the movie journal and my review is up on the website. Uh, I really, really didn't like never look away, but I really did like nitrate kisses, which Scott, uh, again, sat next to me. Yeah. It's uh, like the opposite for. of never look away. It's really short and really <laughs> well, good. Well, that's the thing. It was, <laughs> so the, the Egyptian is the big theater and then it has a small, like sort yeah. of black box inside it and never look away is so long and nitrate kisses <laughs> is so short. The nitrate kisses started 45 minutes after never look away. By the time it was over, there was still more than an hour of never look, <laughs> look away left to yeah. go. Um, so yeah, uh, nitrate kisses is a, uh, again, part of the cinema, uh, treasures thing. And here's the thing I wanted to, um, 
Uh, Natalie said I was being ridiculous, uh, but they had a written intro for all the cinema treasures. Did you go to any besides Nitrate Kisses? No, that was the only one. Okay, so they were talking about, because their their theme this year, I'm not sure what the literal words were, but it was all female directors. Most of it was uh, 90, or most of it was early 90s or mid-90s for Dry Long So, right? I mean, this was from the, or was it from the 90s? I thought this was from like the 80s. Um, uh, maybe it was. Yeah, maybe I'm getting confused because... Uh, Oh, no, 92. You're right. 92, okay. Um, And so they had this speech, and one of the things they say are, they said was, as cultural gatekeepers, we think it's our duty. And as soon as, every time I would hear the words cultural gatekeepers, I was like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you to appoint yourself? Yeah, for someone to refer to themselves that way. But then Natalie was like, you and your friends go out of your way, go through all this bullshit to come to their festival. You're kind of making them cultural gatekeepers by, uh, by, by showing up. Uh, but yeah, exactly. Don't call yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so nitrate kisses is, uh, I guess uh, it's not, I guess a documentary. I don't know. That seems weird. Um, but it is uh, though. Uh, okay. It's a collage of, uh, interviews and footage, um, with, um, with, with with gay couples, large, mostly lesbian couples, telling their telling their stories, and it's all intercut with um, with I think there's three different couples, right? Having yeah, uh, the filmed having sexual encounters. Yeah, I guess to put it um, politely, because it's a it's a very explicit, <laughs> it's actually movie. very graphic, raunchy sex. Yeah, but I also like I, I think um, you know people talk about that saying like um, I don't I can't define pornography, but I know when I see it like. I can also, I also know when something is not pornography, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah. this is as graphic as pornography, but I think pornography has a lot to do with intent. And I don't think this is meant to be jerk off material <laughs> or anything like that. Like I could probably make it work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we should say that all the couples are like 60 or 70 years old. Yeah. I don't know how well, you swing. Two, what <laughs> point are you making? I think the two men were, are younger. Yeah, that's uh, true. But yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the women, especially the, yeah, the first couple are, uh, are older. Um, but it's weirdly sweet, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, I don't know. What, I, what else do you have to, um, just that it largely deals with the era of, uh, gay people's lives that isn't often explored anymore. I think most movies tend to view gay history as having started in the sixties and right. this goes much further back than that and really digs into both the highs and the lows of living through a time when gay life wasn't really on many people's radar. In some ways that was to the people's advantage. Like it was easy to have fairly discreet encounters and keep them discreet without people asking a lot of questions. Um, and some of the stories are very funny. Some are very sad. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the general tone is very sweet and very celebratory of the fact that people figured out a way to make their lives work. Um, and for decades, uh, at times which weren't terribly friendly to them. Yeah. We talked, uh, Tyler and I or, or talked on an episode a little bit ago about, uh, an article and I can't remember what uh, site it was on, but about basically, a, a, a gay film critic saying, I'm glad that, you know, there's more acceptance in cinema now, but I kind of miss the real like queer queer cinema right, of the nineties. Totally. And so I was kind of expecting that this being a nineteen ninety two uh, movie, and it definitely is that era of queer cinema. But again, like you said, these are sixty, seventy year old couples in nineteen ninety two. Their stories I was surprised that this wasn't about like the gay scene in the early nineties at all. Right. That their stories are from the forties and fifties. Um yeah, I, I, I found it very, uh, very powerful stuff. Um, 
Oh, fuck. The next movie. Because <laughs> I just got done. People, listeners, poke behind, peek behind the curtain. We just recorded a movie journal. So I just got done talking about how much I hated On the Basis of Sex. Okay. Well, I don't know what examples you use, but I have the perfect way to sum up how stupid okay. and condescending this movie is. So it largely revolves around uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in kind of the first major legal uh, case of her career where she's fighting on behalf of a man who can't get some tax credit for, for caring for his elderly mother because he's a man. The tax code is written right. expecting that women would take this credit. Um, and it's a way for her to break down sexual discrimination laws and all that by essentially making men the victims. Uh, it's a smart legal strategy. And obviously, as we all know in the history, it worked. Um, so when she first goes to meet with her prospective client, uh, they kind of feel each other out. You know, he's not sure he wants to get into this big thing that really he recognizes right away isn't really about him. I think I know what you're going to say. I didn't <laughs> say on the podcast, I did put it in my review. Um, so one of the ways they kind of, she tries to get to know him, tries to relate to him. She sees a photo of him in marching band. Uh, no, this is something else. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing what you're going to get at. Um, she sees a photo of him in the marching band. She's like, Oh, you were a drummer. I, you know, I was a baton twirler and this is a way for them to kind of connect. So then towards the end of the scene, you know, you, you can tell he's kind of coming around. He's going to be on board. And he's like, so I guess I'll be the Guinea pig. And she'll be like, no, you'll be the one leading the band. And for a second there, I'm like, well, that's kind of sweet. You know, that's a way to kind of tie the scene together to back where it begins. And there's kind of a beat between the two of them as they smile. And then she says like that boy in the photo. <laughs> 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 it's like Christ I just this was a minute and a half ago I think yeah. I can remember uh, yeah that's a perfect example no the one I, the conversation between her and her client that I was going to talk about when she was like we can get this we can win this we can get it overturned and he's like so you're saying the judge was wrong and she goes no the law is wrong yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which reminds me okay this is let's not talk about this stupid movie anymore um, have you there's a new doctor TV show that's so terrible I can't remember. Oh the name yes, of it. I know exactly what you're talking about um, because there's ads for it on Hulu all the time. Well, did you see the billboard that has it, this? It feels like this should be a parody out of a movie, but it's a real billboard for a real show. The tagline is: "They don't care for rules; they care for patients." <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Good God! Um, there are people in this world struggling to find jobs <laughs> and that guy is able or woman i'm sorry yeah. was able to put that out there and uh be championed for it uh -huh. it would appear <laughs> yeah oh good god um that reminds me though before we move on to the next one another this isn't an afi specific complaint but i always get sick of the bumpers at every festival right and this one afi i think they always do this it's a bunch of clips from the movies yeah right? Um, yeah, I think and, they mostly do that. Yeah, only a few of them have dialogue, and unfortunately, one of them is Felicity Jones saying the name Ruth Bader Ginsburg in like a weird way that I don't yeah. understand. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, <laughs> it's one of the few times in the movie where she has a pronounced accent. Actually, <laughs> uh, no, I think she does it too much. Okay, yeah, she says Beta all the time because uh, she's from Brooklyn. The right. character is <laughs> Felicity Jones is not from Brooklyn, um, uh, and now I can't remember what the. Uh, uh, well, the other ones, well, there, of course, there's the Her Smell one, which I love. Right. Uh, those people deserve a show. And there's um, also Saoirse Ronan saying, uh, our oh, swords our, are not just for show. Our swords are not just for show. That's right. And there's, yeah, Margot Robbie with a pound and a half of white makeup on her face. Yeah. Uh, which may actually made me want to see that movie a little bit. <laughs> um, but our next movie was also featured, I think. Oh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> 
I don't know what you were going to say, so I don't know if it was or wasn't. Uh, what? No, there was not a clip from this movie. It's a real no. roller coaster it, of emotion. There was a clip from Roma. Yeah. Which is also, is this movie also Mexican? Yes. And also black and white? No. Oh, it's not black and white. Okay. <laughs> I think that's why I thought that the, this movie was black and white. So what's the next movie? The next movie is the newest color feature <laughs> from <laughs> Art House favorite director, Carlos Regattas. Uh, his last two films, Silent Light and Post Tenebrous Lux, I think are some of the best in modern cinema. I think they're absolutely incredible. Uh, very imaginative, very introspective and provocative in very productive and ambitious ways. Uh, they totally stand up. So I was very excited to see our time, even though it has two major marks against it. One it is that it is a three hour movie about a married couple uh, exploring the bounds of open marriage. Uh, the second is that it stars Regattas and his wife as that married couple. <laughs> um, and uh, they actually proved to be fairly good actors. He, I, forgot about this kind of going into it, but he always makes movies with uh, what we'd call non-actors, but essentially non-professional actors, uh, amateurs who don't really have any experience, and he always coaxes great performances out of them. Turns out he can do the same for himself and his wife. He's very charismatic on screen, very warm and genial, and she really digs into some great emotional territory. Um, And the film itself is quite good on the whole. It uh, is just as beautiful as his other films and uses machines in an interesting way. One of the things he's concerned about, and one of the reasons it's called Our Time, is the way people increasingly form intimate bonds over uh, emails and text messages and stuff instead of doing so in person. Um, And that kind of contributes to the sense of disconnect. Without putting too fine a point on it, he's not out to take down modern technology, but more just approaching that this is the way people relate now and exploring maybe the limitations that that might hold. But then there's these two sequences that are extraordinary. One in which, uh, Natalia Lopez is that's Regattas's wife who plays the wife in the movie. Um, she's driving and thinking about this man who she wants to sleep with. The man who's not her husband, obviously. Um, and as it's intercut with her face kind of conveying a sense of desire, it, the camera cuts to the inside of the car and all these machines kind of like thudding away to kind of uh, mirror the desire she's feeling. And it's something I hadn't quite seen in the, a film before. The other is one in which she's reading a letter that she wrote, or probably an email that she wrote to her husband. Uh, but the footage we see is kind of flying over a city and think it's like a helicopter shot, but then it starts getting closer and closer and faster and faster. And you realize it's a plane landing. Um, and on the big screen, it's breathtaking to watch, especially in the midst of this very moving letter that she's reading. Uh, so yeah, I, I, the film is very good at digging out the emotional territory that it's trying to get into. I think it is at three hours a little over long. She and Natalia Lopez usually serves as editor on his films, and her kind of exacting hand is kind of missing from it. There's sequences that are just kind of meandering and not terribly well thought out. But on the whole, I was really kind of surprised and taken with the film. Uh, I'm going to make you keep talking because I talked about piercing uh, after Sundance. But uh, now we've both seen it. So, yeah, it's uh, about uh, Chris Rabbit, who plays, you know, white businessman's archetypal character who tells his wife he's going out of town when he is, in fact, going downtown to a hotel room to murder a prostitute. Uh, Classic weekend getaway. Um, But then the prostitute shows up and things don't quite go exactly to his plan. And as much as I was kind of worried about the film at the start and feeling that it just kind of like a lot of modern thrillers and horror movies just kind of borrows from Brian De Palma and kind of a loose sense of giallo aesthetics. But I think it really gets to its own territory and its own sense of perversity. And especially towards the end gets more and more imaginative with its sense of reality at all. Uh, 
So I, I really liked it on the whole. Yeah, I had a very similar experience where I was sitting there watching it like before the turn that you're talking about where I was like, I, I, why am I sitting here with this, you know, misogynist psychopath? That part it, didn't bother me. Like, just, <laughs> I just watched The House of Jack built. I can hang with oh, misogynist right. psychopaths. But he's like playing by with this sort of like Chris Abbott almost plays him like kind of a puppy dog almost. Yeah. Um, which ends up being to great benefit. Totally. But I think the part when he's before she shows up, when he's like acting out the murder, I was like, oh, this is supposed to be funny, too. Like, that's weird. Uh, and I was really unsure about it. And then there is a very distinct turn with Mia Vashikovsky's character. Also, she's played by Mia Vashikovsky, who's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and from that point on, I was completely on board with the movie. I also want to mention the actor. She's only in a couple scenes, but who plays his wife. Uh, yeah. Lea Costa, uh, who was in a movie uh, in 2015 called Victoria, which was uh, that movie that's two hours and 20 minutes long. That's all one take. The German movie. She's a Spanish actress. It's a German movie, um, and uh, I've become a big fan of her. She's obviously great in Victoria. She's got another movie coming out called Maine, yeah. the state. Um, uh, and uh, so I think she might be a one to watch. I dig her. Yeah. All right. Um, am I up next? Yes. Okay, so I said oh, that Hotel by the River was my favorite movie that I saw at AFI Fest, but I should say my favorite new movie as part of the Cinema Treasures um uh, cultural gatekeeping festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a movie from, I want to say 1990. I'm looking it up now called queen of diamonds. That is so wonderful. Uh, so amazing. Um, that can't be it. Uh, <laughs> why does it say 2007? No, 1991. Okay. Queen of diamonds directed by Nina Menkes, uh, starring her sister, um, whose name is Tinka Menkes, um, who plays a uh, croupier, I guess would be a fancy way to say it, at a very rundown casino in Las Vegas. Um, and uh, she maybe has a husband who's out of town, or maybe he's left her. The story doesn't make doesn't mean anything. She has neighbors who are annoying. This is a movie that's about... it's less than 80 minutes long. It just consists of mostly serious shots or scenes that play out often in just one shot. Some of them, uh, with no dialogue, there's an entire, she meets a guy at the beach or not the beach at the reservoir. Cause there's no beaches in, uh, Las Vegas. She meets a guy at the reservoir, decides to go on a rock with him. They come upon a palm tree that's on fire. And then the next like six minutes of the movie is just their back like back to the camera as we watch this palm tree burn Mm. with them. Um, but it's also really, really funny. Um, uh, there's a, there's a part where some guy we, we have never met before proposes to her by hiding a, uh, wedding ring in her fish at at dinner. (laughs) And he's, he's going like, go on, eat your fish, eat your fish. So she's like picking at the fish and she picks out the, um, the ring with her fork tosses it sideways across the table and goes, I'm exhausted. I got to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then there's the sort of, uh, I guess I would call it the climax. Again, there's no story. So it's not the climax in the, you know, Aristotelian type of narrative way, but the climax is just a very long sequence of her dealing blackjack uh, over the course of a, a shift that uh, you see people come and go from her table. And it's like, it's probably about a 10 to 12 minute 
uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe about a 10 to 12 minute uh, section in which there's no real dialogue. You hear a lot of snatches of the people talking. She speaks every once in a while, but mostly she's just dealing. And then we're getting shots of the the neon and the slot machines. And uh, it's a really, really uh, entertaining and, and fun and delightful. I mean, it's, it, it's the kind of movie I, I just... If I were just getting into art film, this movie would be a good way in because it's um, resolutely anti-narrative and yet it's short and it's also really funny. And I think that's um, that's a lot of how I started to uh, understand more artsy films when I was like in, in film school, like with the guy Madden who can be very funny, mm-hmm. you know, that was a good way in, uh, for me. Um, and, uh, this movie, but I want to, I don't want to make it sound like this movie has training wheels or whatever. It's a really, really amazing, uh, movie. Um, I hope more people get to see it. It's called queen of diamonds. Okay. Uh, I still haven't, again, this is, I still haven't seen Roma. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, in this case it is out and release. So there's a little true. bit of still yeah. that you can, uh, Feel okay about. Although actually, I think it only comes out in Los Angeles today. Um, it came out in New York last week. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, that's why I did not write a review for the site because I thought it was coming out this week. Uh, uh, that's all right. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually was uh, uh, going to go see it on Sunday, but I think uh, Natalie and I might go look at adopting a dog. Oh, yeah. So that's exciting. Anyway. Uh, what did you think of Roma? Um, I was really looking forward to this movie. I love E.T. Mama Tambien and I like Children Men and Gravity quite a bit. Um, but I was fairly disappointed by Roma. Uh, Alfonso Cron wrote, directed, and for the first time served as a cinematographer hmm. on the film. And I think that's where it really kind of lacks. Uh, his entire visual approach is ambitious in some ways and it's very well done it's well lit it there's this tremendous depth of field the technical quality is impeccable but it just felt like every scene revolved around the technical capacity of the film it's about this maid working uh in mexico for a well-to-do family um she clearly comes back from a lower class background and is in some ways kind of part of the family but in some ways treated as kind of part of the decor uh you know they'll, they'll have like screaming fights in front of her and not really think about the fact that there's another person in the room at all uh but it he never really finds a way into her interior life and as the film goes on he keeps finding ways to do these kind of elaborate setups there's a student riot and a protest that turns into a very violent police activity and he just can't help but pan around to that instead of focusing on how much she might feel about being in the midst of this violence mm. um and there's other scenes like that where she's in these kind of big sweeping vistas that the point of which the scenes seem to be look at these big sweeping vistas and not her experience of these events, let alone the more personal and emotional angles. There are two really incredible standout scenes, I should say, where the film really does focus on her and kind of how she's taken in the events of the story. But it, for a two hour and 15 minute movie, you know, to have it all come down to these two scenes is too little too late. And it's just too schematic to really dive into a character piece and to kind of, I don't know, technical, technically stoic to express itself visually. Um, my kind of quip on Twitter is that it feels destined for kind of one perfect shot, that Twitter yeah. account. Um, <laughs> but they're not, the shots aren't really doing anything other than being perfect. 
um, yeah, I was pretty disappointed. I, I, I equally follow people who are one perfect shot film Twitter and people who are resolutely anti one perfect <laughs> shot Twitter, uh, is very, funny. I like the account, you know, it's fun to see good stills for movies, but, uh, trying to sum up a movie in a shot is, yeah. you know, a big, um, big ask. Did you see a Brazilian movie from a few years ago called the second mother? No. And it's also about a maid. Uh, and it's a very, very good movie. All right. Yeah. I would definitely check out the second mother if I were anyone. Um, <laughs> you've got a couple more to go in a row here. Oh, that's right. Uh, Shoplifters is the new movie from Hirokazu Koreeda. He won the Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and is incredibly well-deserved. I've been a Koreeda fan for several years now. Uh, his 2015 film, Our Little Sister, was on my top 10 list. Uh, whatever year it came out here. Yeah, that's a great movie. It is a great movie. And this, I think will really bring a lot of people around who aren't necessarily Coriata fans. I think these past couple of films have been very kind of small scale and not, you know, somebody joked that after the storm benefited by having at least one complicating incident, uh, which <laughs> I, is, is an accurate assessment, but if you, it just depends on how important you think that kind of thing is. Uh, Shoplifters has many complicating incidents. It's about this kind of loose knit collection of people who are a sort of family, but most of whom aren't related to each other. They just kind of wound up together in this tiny shack in Tokyo uh, and kind of get by day to day in menial labor uh, through an old woman's pension and through, of course, some shoplifting. Um, And for the first hour or so, you think it's, you know, for the most part, standard Korean affair. I think the strongest decision he makes up front is for them to take in one more little girl who we see comes from an abusive household. And we can see that they're rescuing her, but we recognize that you can't just go stealing kids. That's probably going to come back around. So <laughs> there's kind of some background tension as it goes through familiar Korean territory of this, these very sweet family moments. You know, they go to the beach together. Uh, they teach the kids how to swim. Uh, they, see some they kind of hear some fireworks and kind of treat that as a fireworks show which is a really strong way to summarize much of the experience of poverty of knowing that something exciting is happening and being happy you're close to near it and sometimes that's the most joy you can get when you you can't go experience it yourself um so there's a lot of moments like that that really well up and which do so sneakily so that by the time this lifestyle inevitably comes crashing down around them. It really stings all the more. Um, and I've kind of reached that, uh, psychopathic moment in cinephilia where I can only get so depressed by depressive movies, you know, <laughs> where it's like, but this is so good. Like uh-huh. I can't be that depressed because it's so well done, but this movie just completely flattened me. I was okay. genuinely so depressed throughout the next day as well. Um, oh, wow. from the experience of watching this movie. Okay. So um, it's kind of in like, uh, did you ever see nobody knows? No, I, I, I want to see that. Yeah. That's but a- it, from what I understand, yeah, yeah, it's similar territory. Okay. Um, um, yeah, so this is definitely one of the best movies of the year for me. Uh, going back to what you were saying about lack of complicating incidents, <laughs> do you remember there was an Onion headline a while ago that was like, uh, Mom just wants to rent nice movie for yeah. once? Like, <laughs> if if Mom's okay with subtitles, Our Little Sister is exactly the Absolutely. movie that that It's mom the wants. nicest movie. Uh, and that is not a critique. I love Our no, Little Sister. No, it's great. Uh, all right, and then... Uh, Keep going with a movie that yeah. I, I can't imagine is good. Uh, you are correct. It's a very <laughs> nice movie, actually, called Stan and Ollie, uh, about Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, um, mostly centering around them in the 50s as they try to do this live stage show. To, they're hoping it'll revitalize their careers and get interested in a the movie they're trying to make. Um, we sense early on that that's probably not going to happen, but 
along the way they do kind of regain the old teamwork uh they've been estranged for many years but they quickly fall into some old professional patterns um the, this is a very strange movie because every single performance is excellent and even the smallest characters have real personality and depth and quirks, which you so rarely see in modern movies. The strongest thing you see in watching the movies from the 30s is that the like one-line characters will have a strong personality and you never see that anymore. This movie gets that that's important. It clearly has seen all the Laurel Hardy movies and other movies from the thirties and takes that as an inspiration. Uh, their wives in particular played by Shirley Henderson and Nina Arianda. I should say, I guess that John C. Riley plays Oliver Hardy and Steve Coogan plays Dan Laurel and they are good as well, but their wives are really, I like Nina the standout. I, I could remember her from anything in particular, but she seemed vaguely familiar. Um, um, <laughs> now I'm drawing a blank. Okay, that's okay. Um, uh, Shirley Henderson, I, I always remember most as one of the gossipy women uh, that Kirsten Dunst comes in contact with in Marie Antoinette. She's one of the kind of the uh, aristocratic set of Versailles. Um, she's also Moaning Myrtle, right? Shirley Henderson? I, I don't know. This Moaning one. Myrtle from the Harry Potter uh, yeah, movies? She is. No, yeah. If you say that. Um, anyway, so they're very good, but yeah, like I said, every one scene character has great life and personality, and yet the film itself is completely lifeless. It just feels like an animatronic show or a live reenactment to kind of teach us about Lauren Hardy. It's remarkably, especially for a 90-minute film, like I said, filled with great performances, no scene has any energy to it. It's just, it just sits there. Yeah, when I, because uh, I am a big fan of Laurel and Hardy, and uh, I was excited when I heard the casting, because it's the kind of thing that, like, John C. Riley, especially as Oliver Hardy, like, admit, initially I was like, wait, what? And then I thought, no, that's actually yeah. pretty solid. Um but then I saw the trailer, and I recognize that you can't judge a movie by its trailer, but as I was looking, I was just like, yeah, this seems just so inessential. Yeah. It just seems like a Wikipedia movie. Totally. Uh, with, I'm sure, good makeup and costumes. Like, it, everything's there except uh, life yeah about or a heart or anything yeah probably the strangest choice they make is to have several scenes feel like little laurel and hardy movies Mm -hmm. when the whole movie is supposed to be about the distance they actually are from these characters and how you know it it doesn't it just feels like it's just too nostalgic and so they have these like comedic scenes that are just set up like laurel hardy movies yeah that just feel completely out of place wouldn't it be awesome though if if they made a movie like there's like oh the behind the scenes, but they basically posit the idea that behind the scenes is exactly the same, and they just they're like we're talking with their agents and stuff, but they're still getting into the agents like okay uh, I you know I booked you a, a film it's across town uh, and it involves a piano so you guys are going to need to take the piano across town to the film that you're in uh, I would like that that would be if fun. they committed to it yeah I could um, see that so. Real quick, Nina and uh, for some reason she made an impression on me in Tire- Tower Heist, the Brett Ratner movie. Okay. But what I mostly know her from, to go back to TV's Hannibal, again in season three, she played oh, yeah. Molly Graham when when, uh, yeah. when Will Graham gets married. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or, yeah, he gets married. Um, and the reason that's notable is because she and Hugh Dancy were on Broadway together uh, in they did Venus and Fur. Oh. Broadway, maybe it's London. Anyway, they were on, on stage together in a, what I've have uh, surmised was a very well-received production of Venus and Fur. Right on. All right. Um, all right, here's a movie. So, so, okay, sometimes when I go into AFI Fest or really any festival, I have like a short list. You know, these are movies I want to see. Try and cram as many of them in. And sometimes when you do that, you end up with 
holes in your schedule where it's like, well, I could fit a movie here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what's playing that sounds good. And so that's how I ended up seeing, um, and I don't forget the director's last name. It's Wolfgang something. Um, the movie is called Sticks. It's a German movie, S-T-Y-X, like the band. <laughs> like the river but, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I think it's like the band um because of who my dad was <laughs> which is a big yeah. sticks fan um um anyway uh and this movie was a real real find for me a real a real treasure um i'll tell you how, it starts off with just a bunch of shots of bamboo baboons crawling up and around a rooftop set to music that sounds like the music Neil Young did for Dead Man. Oh, got it. Right yeah. on. So it just has this for a while. Now, how it, would you describe these baboons? Dangerous. Got it. Um, <laughs> and then it cuts uh, from there. It's just, that just happens for a while. And then it cuts from there to a nighttime intersection where two, uh, you know, uh, two people are like drag racing through the intersection and they cause someone else to have an accident. And it's like, so it's sudden and loud and violent. And then you're waiting. And then the ambulances show up. And finally we meet our main character who is uh, an ER sort of uh, doctor. Um, and she's on the scene and, and trying to help this person. Uh, and then from there we cut. So then she, she's trying to get this person out of the, who's stuck in the car out of the car without uh, hurting his spine or whatever. And then we cut to the real meat of the movie, which is her going on uh, a very long solo sailing trip. She's taken a leave of absence from her job. Um, and this is where the movie starts to inevitably draw comparisons to J.C. Shandor's All is Lost mm-hmm. because it is a solo sailing trip that for a long time is completely wordless. Um, but I think and I liked All is Lost. I didn't love it. Um, part of why I didn't love it is that it felt a little too self-conscious like it was it had this. You know, I had this rule like we can only have one word of dialogue in the entire movie, and it seemed to sometimes be going out of its way to um, to to call attention to the fact that the character is not talking at all. This one isn't that obvious. She does occasionally use the radio uh, eventually, um, and then uh, probably a little less than halfway into the movie, she encounters. Uh, an enormous storm and so there's a very long very intense um sequence of her just the storm is like 36 hours long we see her like barely staying awake but having to keep the ship afloat and work the rigging and all this stuff it's very exhausting and then finally she wakes up the ne- it's the next morning and the sky is beautiful and clear and we think oh we're through that and then that's where the real movie kind of starts at this point because she goes out on her deck and realizes that um there is a completely busted and very slowly sinking ship overcrowded with refugees leaving Africa and trying to come to Europe. Uh, and she doesn't know what to do. She's got this small, she can't, there's, you know, there's a hundred people or whatever on the ship. She can't, she can't help them. They can't swim. They're dying. She's trying to call on the, the coast guard. One of them, a young boy is actually strong enough to make it to her ship. Choose her, uh, training to mm-hmm. sort of make him better. And then the rest of the movie is them sort of trying to figure out what to do. He wants to just go and get his sister who's still on the ship. Mm-hmm. She's like, if I go over there, people start jumping out of the ship. They're going to drown. Um, it's uh, the, the sort of the political allegory is kind of obvious here. The idea of that, even those of us who have means and have compassion and come from the developed world, there's only so much we can do. And it's very frustrating to realize how much we can't do and how many people are literally dying while we're unable to, to help. Um, but the movie is about more than just it's, it's, it's allegory. It really, um, focuses on the human element of both her and the, and the refugee boy. 
Um, it's a, a, a really, really good movie. Uh, yeah, sticks. Okay. Uh, next up, um, Scott, you, you were spared from seeing Lajla Nemesis Sunset. Uh, yeah, after I heard you talk about it. Because I didn't even like uh, Son of Saul that much. So I, I was feel like, like oh, I like Son of Saul less. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said that on the, on the TIFF episode. Like, there's stuff that I forgave because I was like, well, yeah, he's making a Holocaust movie. It's going to be, right. like, uh, you know, kind of self-important or whatever. <laughs> and then this movie's about a fucking milliner um, uh, or a wannabe milliner. Um, and... Uh, uh, is still as dour. I, I, I didn't like it. Um, so let's move on to a movie. Uh, and this is one I think you and I really disagreed on. Yeah, but I mean, it's not like I have a strong case against it. It's Vision by Naomi Kawasi. Um, it's about Julia Binoche going to a Japanese she's forest. She's not playing herself, but yeah. <laughs> she's always a little bit playing herself. Um, she's very limited. <laughs> no, I love Julia Binoche. Me too. Um, She's going to a Japanese forest to find this rare plant that blooms every thousand or so years, give or take a few. Shades um, of uh, Embrace of the Serpent there? Sure. <laughs> did you not see him? I did, but yeah. I forgot that that was what was going on. Oh. Uh, good movie. Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, Sundance, uh, Birds of Passage is uh, playing at Sundance. Oh, but sweet. Yeah. Anyway, that's his, that's... <laughs> Ciro Guerra's new movie. Um, anyway, back to Vision. Uh, yeah, so she goes to the Japanese forest, meets people there, hangs out, and tries to convince them that this plant is real, which inevitably it is. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. it, it, I just, it, I think you summed it up our different views best, is that you were immediately on the film's wavelength, something aesthetically about it spoke to you, and it, I just wasn't. Uh, yeah, there's, um, and I have a theory, uh, a hypothesis as to why, but I'll get to okay. that in a second. Um yeah, so the story you're telling is true. There's also a lot, lot more to it, um, and it's told. Uh, I mean, if you say like it's told non-linearly, that sort of implies, I think, like a uh, a scheme, like a memento type thing. Yeah, it's just told in snatches that happen. Uh, there is a there is a chronological through line of her meeting this guy who is living on his own uh, in the forest, but then we're getting a lot more about. Um, about her past and some other things. And it's all kind of folded together. It's yeah. not very, like you said, schematic. It's more like these are all kind of blurring together and folding yeah. in on one another. Yeah. And so there are a lot of things like close ups of dew dropping off leaves. Uh, is <laughs> fun for me. Um, I, li- I like that kind of stuff. Um, and there's, uh, I, I, I think, um, so the thing, I, I can't remember uh, everything that you said, but you, so the, the plant is supposed to heal like sort of human misery yeah. or whatever. Um, and so I think we eventually uh, do find out what specifically she's sad about. But I think the the elliptical and cyclical nature of the movie is really more about that time and human misery are just essentially constants that don't move don't move in a straight line and can't necessarily be solved even if we do eventually get the uh the plan <laughs> of the end we never we we get it but we never actually see it work yeah no totally which is kind of a spoiler sorry um but i, I won't go there's more spoilers i don't think it's that much of a spoiler it's I mean, like it's not really a spoilable yeah and movie in a lot of ways i think if you're gonna i think the aesthetic setup makes it clear that there's something magical going on yeah yeah so that's another reason that i was on its wavelength i like uh magical movies um but uh i have a hypothesis i think you were maybe less 
tuned in to its visual sense because so much uh, so much of it is clearly digital uh, no, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother you? I think what did bother me is that the DCP was really bad. Um, and so it was harder for me to tune into it visually. Uh, in so, yeah, and some of the, there was a, I don't know if it was compression or what, but yeah, and some of the, especially like the big establishing shots yeah. of the uh, valley of trees and stuff. Pretty pixelated. Uh, yeah, there was, there was some stuff there, but that, again, I don't care. I grew up <laughs> watching movies on VHS. Um, this is better than that, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good enough for me I'd yeah say. so anyway uh so uh and ella is it elegaic or elegiac because it's I elegy, elegaic but it's from the word elegy right yeah so is it elegiac I don't, I don't know it's a word that i write a lot yeah. but i don't ever say out loud let's say elegaic uh, uh so an elegaic movie uh about people trying to connect with one another that also has um again elements of magic yeah, I'm a sucker for all of those things. I definitely could have done it without the parts where she like write down the writes down the plant name, puts an arrow, and then writes the word pain, and then crosses out pain to make it clear that the plant leads to no pain. There's um, got to be four times that happens. That's in the funny. Yeah, I didn't really think about a little that. too many of those. We also didn't talk about the um, the woman that she's traveling with at the beginning, who is a very charming actress. I don't know. Yeah, who she is. totally. Uh, but she's great, and I was kind of sad when she's no longer yeah, part of the story. Parts of the movie too early. Uh, yeah. All right. So that's vision. Uh, I wish I could have made a better case for it, but I don't know. Maybe I did all right. <laughs> it's better than VHS is what I got. Yeah, it's definitely better than the horror anthology movie <laughs> VHS. Well, we've established that much. Uh, all right, next up. Oh, I got to talk for a while here. Okay, uh, or for a couple more. And then not about a movie I like. Uh, Vox Lux is next. Brady Corbett's Vox Lux. Um, Brady Corbet. Apparently. Okay. Uh, our friend uh, Jason Eakin met him uh, in Austin at a uh, like screenplay festival or something like that uh, recently and had an in-depth conversation with him. And uh, yeah, apparently that's how you say his last name. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll, he was just screwing with Jason. It's very possible. But the fact that he's, go- he's only got the one T. That's true. It's hard to know. And I could see him absolutely <laughs> pronouncing his last name that way. Yeah. It fits. Yeah. Uh, so Vox Lux, I think, is a movie that is, it's not that it's too ambitious, Is it's that it doesn't actually have the ambition or the conviction to follow through on its ambition. Because I think it's a, I think it's trying to be a movie that is, in, in a sense, about being a Westerner in the 21st century, from Columbine through September 11th, through all sorts of other terrorist attacks and mass shootings. Uh, I, I think that because the movie starts in the year 2000, I think with, uh, a school shooting that is very upsetting. Um, uh, and then follows her this character, uh, played by, and I forget her name, but it's the, the girl who was Colin Farrell's daughter in, uh, killing of a sacred deer. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and through her recovery, she, she survives the shooting. She's recovering. She starts, she and her sister start writing songs. They go on like talk shows. She ends up becoming essentially a pop star with this backstory of she survived a school shooting. Um, and so we see the, I guess her transformation in some ways from this victim, this very religious victim um, to a more, uh, 
imperialistic and self-centered person. And then suddenly the movie jumps 15 years to the present day. And Natalie Portman is playing the grown up version and she's a complete monster. And, um, I think I actually kind of liked, even though I do, I, I definitely worry about the depiction of mass shootings. Cause there's more than one. Actually, I won't give too much away. There's more than one depicted. Um, and, uh, it just seems like, to, to depict that in our modern day, you have to have a really deft hand. And I feel like, um, Brady Cor- Corbet, um, has a, he has a good eye for composition, but you have to worry, like, is he making this too, too cool? Like it's, yeah. I mean, it's horrifying, but it's also kind of, kind of cool. Well, uh, it speaks to that idea of like, is there, is there such a thing as an anti-war movie? Right. Like by showing this kind of violence, is there, is there a way to do it in a way, in, in a way that is not, uh, positively cinematic, yeah. like that makes it look as horrifying as possible. But that's the thing is if you, the best way to make it horrifying is to make it particularly gory, but some people are absolutely into that. Right. So it's very difficult. I feel like, uh, I feel like elephant does it really well by having, by shooting it at a remove. Um, you know, I know that I like elephant more than most, but, um, I might like like it now because I feel like there's a distance there that I think I revisited it quite recently. It's great. Yeah. I really liked it. And, and I feel like it's, it deglamorizes it simply by having it be uh, objective. Like even to even to do it, I think from the point of view of the victims, yeah, which would be of course terrifying. I think even that you run the risk of of getting into horror territory, which some people find exhilarating. Mm. So I don't know. Sorry, uh, that's I mean that's that's actually part of the problem. Most of the problem with Box Lux is the entire second half with uh, Natalie Portman just doing a ridiculous caricature of the uh, spoiled. Uh, inebriated rock star, um, which is funny because her smell. And I, I wonder if I would have liked Vox Lux more if I hadn't seen her smell because her smell does it so well um, that I kept thinking about how good Elizabeth Moss is in her smell um, when Natalie Portman's like, uh, hey, yo, like uh, <laughs> you know, strutting her way around. Wait, did she become Andrew Dice Clay? I was gonna say, does she well, become Viggo Mortensen in Green Book? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, her character is supposed to be from Long Island, so she does have a okay. bit of a. Uh, or is it no Staten Island? The character was mm, Staten same Island. thing. So she has. I don't think it is. It probably isn't. I have yeah. no idea. Um, uh, they're different islands, literally. Anyway, um, uh, there was something else I was going to say about uh, Vox Lux, but you guys have taken me off. <laughs> you talked about. I talked for a while. Elephant so it's fine. for a while. It's fine. But I feel like there was something else that I was going to say uh, about. Uh, uh, about it um oh yeah jude law is, is in it and um i feel like i mean he's good but the character is just again to start with something so ambitious um and to start with the character as interesting as the young version of her and then to do the second half that is just a uh, 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 just trading on every cliche you've seen so she's the out of control rock star and he's the uh enabling and somewhat predatory manager um, and so to see a talent, to see talents like Natalie Portman and Jude law, uh, you know, doing their level best. Um, well, no, that's not true. <laughs> He's doing, I, I, Natalie Portman, I don't know why I feel like she was off the mark from the beginning and whatever she's trying mm. to do there. Um, 
uh, I really, um, started to lose patience with the movie, uh, pretty early into the second half of it. And, uh, Never, never got it back. Okay. Okay. Next up is a movie, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, a, I guess sort of a romantic comedy, um, called the weekend that is about a young woman, uh, played by Sashir Zamata, um, who is still friends with her ex, which is not good for her because she's not over him, even though he's with someone new, her mother, uh, they live in Los Angeles. Um, her mother owns a bed and breakfast in um, Agua Dulce, um, which is in the Antelope Valley, uh, which is like northeast of Los Angeles. Um, and uh, so basically she goes to spend the weekend with her mother at her mother's bed and breakfast with her ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend. And then her mother happens to have another tenant staying at the bed and breakfast who happens to be a single man about her age. So... You can imagine all the different pairings off um, that that happen. Um, so the movie started off on a bad foot for me because, uh, again, like with May-December romances in Maya, one thing that immediately almost always turned me off in movies is characters who are stand-up comedians because yeah, movie stand-up comedy is like, oh, it's harder to sit through than like a bad open mic night sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so it starts off with stand-up comedy. I don't love it. Um, but then I feel like Sashir Zamata in her self-loathing actually seems more like a stand-up comedian off stage than on it. Um, and I think this movie that is, has this romantic comedy set up, um, and definitely has its, its faults. It's a little corny, but it has some good laugh lines. Um, but it definitely is less of a romantic comedy and more of a, uh, person learning to be okay with herself. Um, so it's a, a self-actualizing, uh, movie, um, that is definitely much better than the director's last effort, which was, uh, everything, everything, which was the oh, teen, yeah. uh, young adult novel with it's like, Ma- it's a Amanda Stenberg. Right? Was that? It's like a bubble boy, right? but it's a house girl. Okay. <laughs> She's not allowed to leave her house, but she has, it's not a bubble. Her entire house has been made okay. for her disease. So she's not allowed to leave her house. And yet she starts up a relationship with the, uh, doofus next door. Um, I didn't like, didn't like that movie at all. This is definitely improvement. Okay. Uh, all right. I, I hope to, I hope Scott's up next. Oh, widows. We don't have to talk about really. Cause Tyler and I've already talked about on the movie journal. It's already out. Yeah. In some places, is it? I think I it's know. wide release. Okay. It's, it's a Fox movie. Oh, that's right. I keep thinking it's Fox Searchlight because it, it's straight up Fox. Yeah, it is straight up Fox. I, I saw it several weeks ago. It's really stuck with me. Good movie. Uh, I think we're on, uh, we represent a, a spectrum. Okay. Because Tyler didn't like it. You like it. I'm in, it's my favorite Stephen Queen movie for whatever that's worth. Um, that I, I'm might in the, be true for me as well. Yeah. And I, it's not that I don't like it. It's that I just, I, there are things I love about it, but it's just, I have reservations about the the film as a whole. I feel like it just doesn't quite work. Uh, and then we're going to end with uh, our final tree. The second <laughs> of the tree. We each had a tree movie. There's also some dead animals in this movie, too. Yeah, you got... Bo- oh, in this movie, too. Okay. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, it's The Wild Pear Tree uh, by Nuri Bilga Salen. I think I'm saying that right. Turkish director. Uh, probably still most famous for Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, though he won the Palme d'Or for Winter Sleep. Um, which I felt like was still less seen somehow, probably because it's over three hours long and came out at the end of December. Right. Um, His first one was distant, I think. Yeah. And I think he did. Did he do three monkeys? Oh, I don't know if that's, 
I can't remember. I saw Distant Beck when I worked at a video store in Chicago, so that was, yeah, 16 years ago. Oh, damn. I realize that you don't have the same, you know, when you're... Yeah, Three Monkeys. In oh, international... What was that? Climates. And also Distant isn't anywhere near his first movie. It's just the first one that I ever heard of. <laughs> it's like his fourth movie. I realize that international directors probably don't need to think about this as much as, say, like a Hollywood, like a mainstream mm-hmm. Hollywood director. But I feel like if you make a three-hour film, you really should not have the word sleep in the title. Yeah. Like, especially you're, just, if, you're just welcoming it. Especially if they tend to be as slow as yeah. Harry Bilga Salon movies are. Uh, <laughs> this is also three hours uh, and is fairly slow but uh has the benefit i i i like the last two movies as i saw i didn't see winter sleep but i like three monkeys and uh anatolia uh but this has the benefit of having a great deal of humor in it uh it's about a young man who comes home from school he's trying to raise money to publish his novel but from the moment he gets off the bus people start asking about his father's debts uh and so he's really more spending time trying to manage that than he's able to spend getting his career off the ground and most of the three-hour film is just him walking around talking with members of his family talking with old friends talking with random people he runs into um and it kind of follows the template of similar conversation movies like the before movies or any of the movies those movies have inspired where it you know deals with the politics of the day deals with philosophical topics it deals with responsibility of art in public space and all that kind of stuff um what sets us apart from some of those kind of especially the before imitators um is that this has a strong sense of character uh the young man in particular is kind of right-leaning which is an unusual approach to begin with and in turkey right-leaning means fairly violent if you're up on your turkish politics um so he most of his friends have gone in the military and so when he talks to them they talk about how much fun they're having beating leftless lefties senseless and he's laughing along with them um but he's just kind of a mostly he's a dick to everybody um and he's very full of himself. You know, he runs into one of his favorite authors at one point and tries to get advice from him. And by the end of the movie, the author is like, or the end of their conversation, the author is like, I have no other way to get out of this conversation than to tell you I need to leave right now. And I'm sick of tar- 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 tired of talking to you. Um, and so it really gets at kind of that space post-college where you have a lot of ambitions and you have a great sense of yourself and you're trying to get ahead of a lot of things. Um, but you're still inevitably drawn back into your past and put in your place and realize that the world doesn't revolve around you. Uh, so it keeps coming back to conversation with his parents, which are very touching. Uh, his father in particular is this very charismatic guy and you can see how he's racked up all these debts just through sheer force of personality. Um, but now he's just trying to start a farm that's failing, uh, which is epitomized by this well that he keeps digging, even though it's not getting any water up. Um, and yeah, this is, I think, a really exceptional and moving and beautifully shot movie um, and has a lot of depth to it that similar types of movies don't. Um, so I was very impressed with it. I look forward to going back to it because it's, I mean, as one can imagine, a three-hour movie with conversations, some of which involve Turkish politics. It's fairly dense, so I can't say that I have a complete sense of it, but I was really, really blown away by it. Well, there we go. We did that uh, in about as much time as I thought it would take, which is not too bad. We only did the AFI section in two hours. You guys were talking celebrity sightings for the first part of it. That's true. <laughs> uh, but Tyler had to have something to contribute, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you and know what? Next even, year, it wasn't even my sighting. You know what you can do next year? 
Go to AFI Fest. It's free. I literally it's also miserable, but it's free. Go to the very unwelcoming uh, film yeah, festival. Yeah, you guys haven't made it sound very appetizing, <laughs> but uh, no, you say, you know what you can do next year? Uh, and then you said go, and I thought you were going to say go fuck yourself, yeah. <laughs> which I thought would be pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can do that this year. If you sure. Want. Um, I can do that anytime, especially with that... Uh, Movie with the, uh, you know, 60 and 70 year old. Yeah, uh, there you go. Recently restored. Um, Oh, man. So, yeah, no, you pixelated like that bullshit digital movie. You should um, you should go to AFI. That's again, it's free. And that's great. Yeah. Um, And they show. Obviously, we just talked about a bunch of movies we love. This was a really good year after last year. I remember feeling kind of. uh, Underwhelmed. Yeah, I should say, I think this is the strongest year offhand since 2012. Okay. Yeah, last year, I mean, my favorite movie was California Split, which was part of their <laughs> all in retrospective. And then I liked the um, the other side of Hope, the uh, uh, Aki Kurismaki movie. But that was like it last year. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, anyway, uh, this is a good year. AFI Fest is actually a good way to see a lot of great movies. I wish it had the fun of almost any other festival <laughs> I've ever been to. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not... It needs to put the fest back in festival. Um, and uh, you can find uh, reviews uh, of most of the movies we talked about here uh, at BattleshipRetention.com uh, by me or by Scott. Um, and you can uh, find all this stuff at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow us on Twitter at DaveyPretension or at TylerPretension. Um, what's going on at more than one lesson this week? Nothing right now, unfortunately. Uh, it's looking like we may wind up restructuring a little bit just for time and scheduling reasons. I feel really bad about that, um, but uh, it's just kind of the way things are working out. It may wind up being a thing where I do an episode when I am able. Okay. Uh, Scott, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow or at Battleship Pretension and Criterion Cast, where we'll soon have an episode about Persona that I've been putting off posting because I'm lazy. Oh, that's fun. Uh, thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 